folks. Special edition of the Summit Up podcast, a long-form one-on-one conversation between myself and NIST fellow Ron Ross. It is difficult to describe how important and impactful Ron Ross has been on the world of cybersecurity over the last 30 years of his time at NIST, but as the primary author and designer of documents like NIST SP 853, FIPS 199, FIPS 200, and NIST SP 800-171, among many others, uh, it's safe to say that even the very language that we use in the world of cybersecurity is directly influenced by Ron's work over the last several decades. Uh, I've been waiting to talk to Ron for all 15 years of my cybersecurity career, and in this conversation, we go into everything from his background and origin story, how, like many of us in security, he sort of ended up doing this work by accident, but his curiosity and uh, sort of sense of problem solving drove him further and further into the discipline. We talk about the history and evolution pre and post FISMA, how that influenced the structure and substance and look and feel of NIST publications like SP 853 and how that eventually influenced and influences to this day derivative documents and standards like NIST SP 800-171 and corresponding assessment programs like the DOD's CMMC certification. We talk about everything from the design decisions, the trade-offs, the pros and cons of adopting certain pieces and parts of 853 or not, how that has changed over the last seven years of NIST SP-800-171, some of the details of the design decisions that have gone into the initial public draft of 800-171 Rev-3, the specific rationale behind a couple of individual controls. But ultimately, this episode is designed to give you the necessary background information and context to understand why 800-171 is the document that it is, why 800-171-REV-3 has changed in the way that it has, and how to enable you to think about the document and submit better and more constructive comments to NIST between now and the end of the revision period, both for 800-171-REV-3 and any other NIST document that you might be participating in the public comment process for. This conversation went on for quite some time and we still didn't get to everything, but I think that it provides a lot of insight and details into the philosophy behind NIST and how they approach standards and how all of us who are going to be using those standards to implement security programs or assess and implement security controls uh, can learn something from the guy who's been running the show for the last 30 years. So without further ado, Ron Ross. I have been uh, excited, very excited to talk to you because um, for the entirety of my career, I have been reading and learning from and utilizing uh, documents that have your name on them that you wrote. And so, uh, you know, your name has been a constant uh, through all the phases of my career so far. And for honestly, probably most people in the industry, whether they know it or not. And so it's a huge honor for you to uh, sit down and have a conversation about all these topics. It's, it's something I've been looking forward to for quite some time. 
Um, but I know that there are probably some people out there who maybe somehow are not quite as familiar with you or your background or your role. So um, maybe we can just start there, start at the beginning and then, and then see where it goes. That sounds good. I, before we start, I just wanted to uh, say a couple of words. I actually ran across one of your uh, webcasts by accident. I was on YouTube. And when I was looking, listening to your description and you were going through all the publications and I said, man, this guy knows the FISMA series better than I do. And it's, it was amazing. And I, what I, uh, what I really liked about your approach is that, um, you don't just sugarcoat. You really know the facts about the history of how all these documents came about, but also you're not afraid to question uh, different things that happened over the course. I'm sure we'll get into some of those today. Uh, but, um, you know, at, at NIST, what makes our publications work is the interaction with our customers. And uh, you got you have to have broad shoulders to, to be in this business of publishing standards and guidelines because you, you open yourself up to kudos and, and criticisms, and you've got to be able to take them in the spirit with which they're intended. We have a great cybersecurity community out there from every level, folks who are building products uh, with security features, those who were working on the policy side, government, industry, academia. And uh, over my 30 plus years in this business, I've come to appreciate every one of those customers. And, and that's what really makes the, the work that I do. Uh, I'm, I'm enthusiastic and I just look forward to every single day. Yeah. I, well, first of all, I uh, <laughs> thank you for the kind words. I think that it's... Um it's difficult to explain uh, how meaningful that is to hear that from you. Um, and uh, so, so thanks for that. Uh, I would say that I uh, definitely feel like there's a lot I don't know, which is why I'm excited uh, to sit down with you. But I would, I would agree with you in, in my small amount of time in a sort of public facing role, uh, just sort of conveying my understanding of the NIST pubs and standards, the controls, how they work together. Uh, based off my experience as a cyber engineer and working with them for a long time, um, I have experienced the phenomenon of people attributing their frustrations, justified or unjustified, to me personally, uh, by simply conveying <laughs> the information in and about the documents. So I'm sure that at, in your position, that is magnified tremendously. And you know, there's obviously healthy back and forth. These are somewhat subjective and debatable ideas and topics and implementations. But, um, you know, I can only imagine that over the course of your career, you've seen this <laughs> in spades. Well, you know, uh, it's been, it's got... been interesting. It's been definitely a learning experience for me personally, because I'm sure. from my perspective, it's not any different than the work that normal implementers are doing on a day-to-day -day basis across the government and industry working with these standards for various reasons that we'll get into government programs are sort of spilling out into the rest of the world. And this okay. is people's first exposure to thinking about security and engineering and controlling for security in this way with this sort of lexicon. And uh, sometimes it causes people to bristle a little bit. And, um, and yeah, so that's definitely been something that I have experienced personally, but, um, but yeah, so, I mean, your career now at NIST alone spans decades. And prior to that, you were in the army for quite some time. I mean, what's the, what's the Ron Ross origin story here? 
Well, it's um, I just passed my 50th year of public service, and it's hard to believe. Uh, wow. I still love what I do every day. I, I started out, actually, I, I went to the military academy at West Point, and I undergraduate, um, got my bachelor's in engineering. And then I, after that, I spent almost 21 years in the Army, uh, served assignments all around the world. Um, as part of my Army assignment, um, the Army was investing in some of their officer corps. This was back um, in the mid-80s. This was the height of Silicon Valley, just starting, exploding out there. And they were looking for, they were getting into artificial intelligence and robotics. The Army had an autonomous vehicle program, and they were sending selected officers to graduate school to get a PhD in computer science specializing in artificial intelligence and robotics. So that was kind of a tall order. I, I, I was kind of hesitant to jump into that because in the Army, if they send you to school and you don't succeed, if you fail out of a course, your career is done. I know you, you were in the Navy. You understand what, what that means in the Army. Yeah, yeah. It was always one of those things where um, in, in my role as, uh, you, know, uh, you know, an enlisted sailor, the question always came up, uh, you know, hey, what happens if I don't pass this training? This was right after boot camp. And they were like, you'll go undesignated to the fleet and you'll chip paint. And you're like, um, okay, <laughs> I guess I'll yeah. study. <laughs> well, it's, it's all about risk management, even back then, you know, but, sure. uh, well, I took the plunge and, and several years after that, I, I graduated and I had my, my PhD in computer science and specializing in AI and robotics. And Man, I had a great, great experience at the school there because when you go to the Naval Postgraduate School, that's where I, I attended my postgrad, they teach you about computers from the foundation up to the top. You, you talk about application development, programming languages, networks, down to the chip level, uh, gates and all the things that, you know, you study uh, with integrated circuits. So when you come out of there, you really understand from top to bottom how computers work. And I think you know, that was one of the, the real gifts that I took away from there because it's like in anything you do, you have to master the fundamentals first. Whether you're playing football in high school or college or pro, there's always the two weeks in the summer, the, the two-a-day drills and all that. And they're mastering blocking and tackling. Right. And that's the message. So when I, I, was, I graduated and I was supposed to go become a program manager for the Army's Autonomous Vehicle Program, I got a phone call. The day that I graduated and my detailer at the Department of Army said, hey, you know the job you were going to go to? Well, the guy that's in that seat now decided to extend for a year. So go look for a new job. Well, I had some friends at the National Security Agency. I called them up and said, hey, I just got my degree. Can, can you guys uh, use a computer scientist there? They said, yes, definitely. So they rerouted my orders to... Um, Washington, D.C., and I was assigned to the National Security Agency, I knew absolutely nothing about computer security at that point in my career. Right. You, had been, you had been an engineer by training, and an engineer. Then you, had, you had gone to school for AI and robotics, and now you're getting yes. thrust into a, a security-specific domain. Now I'm at NSA, the, the world's premier organization for um, security, both on the crypto side and, and the computer security. They called it computer security back in, in those days. This is 1990. So I get there. This would have been the time where the colored book series would have still been yes. all the rage. So this would have been orange book days. The rainbow series, the orange right. book. In fact, um, that was where I was assigned to that, to that group. Oh, wow. the, the NSA had carved off a part of their business model. They wanted it to be outward facing so they could work with industry and help them develop 
trusted operating systems. That's where we all started back in, in the mid eighties. And they had a whole program. It was the um, trusted computer system evaluation criteria, the old orange book. Those really defined uh, the first set of security requirements for operating mm-hmm. systems. And there were uh, several different levels of assurance, all the way from relatively low assurance up to high assurance using formal methods to develop code and all of the interpretations that you go through from every level of the highest level uh high-level design down to low-level design and implementation. So I have, so a, I have sure. a question about your time yeah. when you when you showed up to the agency. I thoroughly enjoyed my time at the NSA, which also, you know, in in a very similar way, which I'm sure is, uh, you know, common to most people in the military, the, the to and fro of the needs of the military sort of send you down different paths than what you had imagined. I originally joined the Navy to be a firefighter, and then they sent me to language school in Monterey down the street from the Naval Postgraduate School to be a Mandarin linguist. And then I ended up uh, going to, um, you know, to be a security analyst and then got stationed at uh, NSA myself. So a somewhat similar path there in terms of following uh, uh, how, how yours played out. However, you know, as we're going to talk about 853 in the world of controls and sort of these spiritual successors to things like the rainbow series, you know, 853 for a long time has opened up with a quotation from the where report. And I believe at the time, yeah, that was like a report from the, maybe the seventies, probably prior to you showing up. Was it still classified at that time when? No, it wasn't classified. That was one of the the first, um, I guess, statements about um, computer security uh, that that really uh, made a big impact. uh, Because this would have still been, I mean, now, not that it's not, not relevant any longer, but I'm sure a lot of folks probably don't know what the where report is, what the Anderson report is, but at the time, these would have still been incredibly relevant, like reference documents that everyone was working with, right? Right. They were part of the, I call it the foundation. And so when you show up at the NSA and and you have no knowledge about computer security, the first thing you do is, and, and this is kind of one of my rules I try to follow throughout my whole life is that always get grounded in the fundamentals number one, and invest the time and the effort to get good at the foundation, the fundamentals. And the second thing is to be a lifelong learner because there are so many things that happen. When I look back at the early days of Silicon Valley, uh, we were working on some of the new Silicon Graphics machines that just come out uh, very recently. We used list machines and we were developing code for robotic vehicles and, and all of that kind of stuff. But you get to NSA and now your your whole Focus changes. And so I was lucky that back in those days, they had the brain trust of all of the computer security gurus. They were in one building. And I remember when I, when I first got there, first of all, I had to wait for my top secret SCI clearance because oh, that yeah. took about three months. A, a, ta- so, a, a timeless rite of passage for everyone waiting on, right waiting on your accounts. <laughs> well, so what do you do with, uh, you know, a guy for, for three months? Well, they sent me to two places. They sent me out to NIST to hang my hat out there and wait and talk to folks <laughs> out there, which I did. And they also sent me to a company called Trusted Information Systems run by Steve Walker, who came out of NSA. And there were a lot of top-notch computer security professionals out there. They were developing their own trusted operating system at that mm-hmm. time. So I had the opportunity during those three months to immerse myself with people who were experts in the business. And I was like a sponge. And then when I finally got my clearance, I got in the building. 
I did the same thing for the first year. I would go from office to office and say, hey, can you can you spare a few minutes? And they would sit down and they were so generous with their time. And this is one of the things that I wanted to just mention today is that, you know, you never know in a career what direction it's going to take. One thing I've learned is that life is full of unpredictable things. And investing in your education, and, and I just happen to go into the STEM area, the science, engineering, and, and those kinds of things. But whatever your field is, investing in those fundamentals and getting really grounded in those, job number one. And then, as I said before, uh, being a life learner and, and always trying to reach out and learn new things. Those things are invaluable because when you do get that phone call and say, hey, you thought you were going here, but now you're going over here. The one thing that you have is confidence in your ability. You understand the fundamentals. So when I went into the building at NSA, computer security is built on computer science pretty much mm-hmm. and mathematics, automata theory and all the things that provide the underpinning. So if you have the fundamentals, it, you build security on top of those fundamentals. So I was able right. to pivot pretty easily. And I had to learn a lot of the specifics, obviously. And I took every book that I could find that were, that were kind of foundational books. And I would spend every waking hour reading material, learning about computer security, and then talking to people. And, and I think uh, that that really paid off in the, in the long run. I didn't know at the time that this would become a life's passion with me. I, when you go into a new field, you don't know if you're going to like it or not like it. Right. But I developed literally a love affair with cybersecurity from day one. It, it provided some of the the most challenging uh, type of career things you could experience from technology, this explosive growth of the technology and how it was changing society. It was changing how people did business. And underlying all of this, we're asking ourselves, how do we protect all this information and data that's flowing through these systems? And so over the course of 30 years, I've seen massive changes in the technology, but the same fundamental question is still there. How do we understand what these computers are doing? What's happening to my information when it's in process, storage, or transmission? And how much confidence do I have that my information is going to be secure? Now we have privacy considerations. So, you know, the moral equivalent of a a first-class letter, when you sent a first-class letter back in the day, you, you had pretty good assurance that that letter wasn't going to be open. Now it could. This be is a open. hard copy letter for the kids listening at home. This is a hard physical copy letter so in the in the meat world piece of paper. <laughs> exactly. We're so far from that, but um, but the point is, is that you have some level of assurance that your privacy and, and your security was was well protected. Today, in the world of, of the digital world, where everything is about bits and bytes and going through these massive networks and. And the, the, the big thing that has overwhelmed even the best and the brightest is this issue of complexity, complex systems. There are certain things that um, complexity theory, automata theory, there's a reason why they make you take those courses when you're going through a computer science degree, mm-hmm. because they're the mathematics of computer science. And that can tell you what your limits are and what you want to do and how, how much you can actually um hope to achieve when you're yeah. building, operating, maintaining systems. So that's kind of how it all started. And, and I, uh, yeah. I've never looked back and I have as yeah, much. You know, it's funny. Stuff. You mentioned the fundamentals. Yeah. I would agree. You know, I, don't, I didn't have a formal computer science background. I still don't have a formal computer science background. However, uh, you know, when the Navy put me into training, 
the training focused heavily on the fundamentals of networking, how the protocols worked, was reading a lot of the RFCs from mm -hmm. the protocols themselves. And uh, although I'm not, you know, a network engineer anymore, or technically that wasn't really why we were learning networking for that job, um, those fundamentals still carry through to this day because it still underlies all of the complexity that's been built on top of it, which helps to sort of greatly simplify uh, what's going on, but just kind of gives a perspective on how complex, you know, the environment is and as it's evolving. You know, I have a lot of people who reach out um, to me and they, you know, they're getting started in the industry or they'd like to get started in the industry. And I always tell them I ended up in the industry on accident. A lot of people that I know in security sort of ended up in the industry by accident. But the thing that I've noticed um, that everybody tends to have in common is they tend to have a pretty strong sense of curiosity about security in general. And sort of regardless of whichever sub-discipline you end up specializing in for a period of time or over a long period of time, uh, yeah. it seems to be that uh, whatever hooks people's curiosity tends to allow them to dig through protocols or coding or the math or the crypto or whatever it happens to be that for anybody else would be horrifically boring. Um, and so I always tell people, you know, my small piece of advice is just to try to figure out what part of security, this vast domain of security that strikes their curiosity and dive into there because you can always sort of backfill or pivot once you get your curiosity stoked. And that sort of leads into this idea of, you know, how you went from NSA back to NIST when you were <laughs> no longer in the holding pattern at NIST, because one of the things that I am most curious about and have been curious about for years now is this world of security controls, how these NIST standards work, how they relate, how they're designed, how that has sort of an impact on the larger world of security. I find them incredibly interesting. And so as a result, my curiosity is just constantly going and, you know, sort of diving deeper into these publications, whereas I'd say for <laughs> um, many people, they're not quite as interesting as other facets of the security world. And so diving into something like 853 is just not really what gets them up in the morning. So how did you go from, how did you go from waiting out your accounts at NSA while sitting in the NIST building back to, uh, back to NIST to now, now being Ron Ross at NIST? Well, I was actually at NSA for um, just about three years, and uh, that I was a military officer at that point in time. One of my jobs that I was assigned there was in the division that produced the Rainbow Series. And a lot of the folks listening won't remember those books, but the Orange Book, the Red Book, they were really the fundamentals of, of computer security back in those days. Uh, I was the division chief of the, of the division that produced those publications. Uh, the, the Orange Book was produced before I got there, but... Uh, then at the end of 1993, I decided to retire from, from the Army and, and after about 20 and a half years, almost 21. And I took a job uh, for the next almost three and a half years at the Institute for Defense Analyses, a think tank that supports the DOD. It's kind of like the MITRE, the Aerospace Corporation, their FFRDCs, federally funded research and development centers. And again, I was steeped in the middle of um, cybersecurity, computer security back in the day. And we supported NSA pretty much exclusively. So I was back supporting some of the same people that I had uh, I previously worked with when I was was uh, when I was at the agency. Um, in 1997, I had an opportunity to leave 
IDA and, and join NIST. And I really wanted to, uh, there are certain things you can do from a government seat and there are certain things that you can do from a contractor seat. And I really wanted to try to influence some of the policy and direction of cybersecurity. And NIST uh, was the place to do that. It, it was more outwardly focused and, and focused more on the civilian agencies than NSA did, but yet it was still a, a great organization and, and there was so much opportunity there. So I started in 1997. My first project was the Common Criteria. Oh, yeah. When I was at NSA, we actually wrote the federal criteria, which is the transition between the Orange Book and the international standard, which became the common criteria, was I think it was ISO 15408. And that body of work is still a tremendous uh, body of work today. It has um, functional security requirements, assurance requirements, and, and there's this whole concept of building security uh, into products and systems as part of the life cycle. And so that was my first uh, project at NIST in 1997. I carried that all the way through the early 2000s, and then um, FISMA hit, the legislation. That yep, that's, really that's what I was just writing down here. I was like, man, did, yeah. did you? So before we get into the impact of FISMA, I mean, th thinking about the story that you're telling here, you would have been, you would have, you would have been at the, the sort of forefront of thinking of computer security that sort of crosses Silicon Valley and industry, the intelligence community, the military community at a time when we were at the peak of the cold war, the end of history post, you know, after the Soviet union collapses, the, you know, the advent of the internet and the commercialization of the internet and then on into FISMA. I mean, this is a tremendous, you mentioned there was, there's a lot of change going on. Those are, <laughs> those are sort of, those are pretty big changes that occur in that period. And so, you know, as, as you run headlong into FISMA, I think that now people, you know, I've done this, I've sort of tried to go back and read testimony in the lead up to FISMA and things like that. And some of the quotations that come out of the testimony are quite interesting, but it's difficult to imagine what the perspective would have been like living through. We, we've just, we've just won the cold war, but now we're entering a period of time where there's a, some sort of catalyst needed for FISMA? Like what, what was the, the, the perspective? What was the feeling at the time? What was the sort of collective discourse around security that would have led to something like FISMA? It wasn't the war. Didn't we win? Wasn't the war over at that point? Well, the, uh, you know, warfare and you, you coming from a, a Navy background, all the military folks will understand we we've lived through generations of kinetic warfare and, and now the world at that point in time was changing. And a lot of people could see where this technology was leading us. And at that time, you know, computers have been part of the military systems for, for decades, but there was starting to be a, a greater transition as these computers got smaller and more powerful and they were now being uh, inter integrated or incorporated into weapon systems, command and control systems and all those kinds of things. We, we could now see that uh, our dependence on this technology is is a huge deal. And and I, I started talking about this actually about 20 years ago. This was right around when FISMA came out. I said, you know, we are we are totally dependent on technology for our economic and our national security. And if you and everybody knew that intrinsically. It was kind of we all we all said it, we all understood it. But the real question is what are we going to do about it? How vulnerable have we become 
in this new world order where we're now transitioning from purely kinetic warfare to a combination of kinetic and cyber warfare. And then a lot of people argue today that the future wars may only be cyber wars, because if your fundamental capability is tied up in computing technology that are part of your weapon systems, this is kind of the convergence of cyber and physical systems, then if you can go at the heart, the nerve system of that weapon system and disable it without firing a shot, then that's the way to go. And sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially if you exist sort of, you know, so there's two books that I'll link in the, the episode that I, I always recommend these two books as a pair to folks that are sort of trying to get a perspective on what's going on. One is called A Vulnerable System. I think it does a very good job of tracing the development of the Rainbow Series up through its final chapters where it talks about the uh, economic paradox of security and how it's, you know, assurance is a difficult discipline because security is both an emergent property, as you've mentioned, as well as an unknowable state. And so we have this sort of constant uh, goal that we can't reach and that it's sort of permeated through society as the protocols have developed, as the internet has developed. So a vulnerable system does a very good job. I don't know if you've read it or if you would agree with their, their treatment of you know, the common criteria and the rainbow series. I think that it's, I think that it's quite good, especially towards the end. The other book is a perfect weapon by David Sanger, which based off my experience inside of the intelligence community and the you know military uh, at the time during the Obama administration, uh, given what was going on in the world, I think that it was a very interesting book in terms of describing uh, everybody knew that Iran was trying to enrich uranium and everybody knew that we would neither drop nukes on Tehran nor put boots on the ground. And so because everyone knew that, including Iran, they went ahead to continue to try their uranium enrichment program. And we had all of these tools that were originally just sort of intelligence community tools that were converted into these gray space weapons. And so allegedly the United States, um, you know, was able to disrupt the enrichment of uranium by messing with the critical infrastructure used to spin up centrifuges. Um, and so as a result, this sort of perfect weapon emerged and we, you know, Pandora's box opened yet again, as we're recording this, you know, there was just a joint advisory that came out a couple days ago about this Volt Typhoon uh, APT activity, disrupting critical infrastructure and military infrastructure on Guam. And right. so it's, it's, it's exactly the same situation, uh, you know, several years removed. And so, feel like those two books together, if anyone's looking for more information, provide sort of two nice sides of the same coin for, for that situation as it's developed and is developing. No, I think that's a great, great point because, you know, in the world of kinetic warfare, the warfighters handled the warfighting. It, it was handled over there, wherever that over there might have been. Um, in, in a cyber war or a cyber warfare situation or a combination of cyber and kinetic, the front lines are right here at home. The front lines go deep into the supply chain. And, and if that, if you can disrupt any of those back end type systems that are helping produce the next generation weapon systems, the design, all of those things that, you know, keep our warfighters on the cutting edge. I mean, that's the way you win wars. You have to have a strong economy. You can't, produce cutting edge technologies if you can't afford to, to buy them. I mean, the idea, and, the idea of disrupting the, the, the Nazi war machine was, was kinetically bombing 
the industrial base yeah, in Germany. Exactly right. And so exactly. it would, it would follow that if you can disrupt it without crossing that red line, that you would clearly do that. And so, you know, it just, I can, I think people will start to see sort of where we're going in the conversation here in terms of industrial base data flow assurance yeah. in these sort of distributed supply chains, because you don't, you don't really have to zoom out and look back in history very far to see that this is this is the same conversation by other means, if you will. You know, I, I want to do, uh, as we kind of get a little bit deeper into this, I, I've used the analogy above the waterline, below the waterline yeah. to illustrate how uh, broad and complex this problem is. We, we've done a tremendous amount of work at NIST in the last 20 years on the frameworks and controls. And of course, everyone knows about the crypto work we've been working on for, for decades. But most of that work, a lot of that work, I mean, crypto obviously is below the waterline because it's, you know, it's algorithms and it's implementations. But a lot of the framework, and I know you've talked about this with the cybersecurity framework or our privacy framework, they operate at a certain level, like a 30,000 foot level. They're great vehicles to communicate with the board, the board of directors, people at the top level, the C-suite. But the frameworks in general uh, typically don't get down to the level that we talk about below the waterline. That's where hardware, software, firmware, and systems get designed, developed, implemented, and out to operational um, you know, places. And when we look at the history of, of security, cybersecurity, information security, whatever you want to call it, I think we've focused a lot of our effort above the waterline. We've done a tremendous amount of great work, not just at NIST, but ISO, international standards, our our private sector companies. We've had a lot of tools developed and, and it's been a great effort. But where all of that effort cannot overcome what I'll call the black box problem. And that's what's in the black box. The black box is a metaphor I use for any type of computing device. It could be a, a supercomputer. It could be a smartphone. It could be a network device, a server. The idea is the black box has got a stack of stuff in it that goes from applications down to through operating systems, middleware operating systems, down to integrated circuits, hardware, software, firmware. All of that has to be designed and developed. And in that design process, there, there could be errors in many different places in the design. You could have flawed requirements. You can have flawed implementation or design. Uh, there are so many places where weaknesses and deficiencies can occur when you're trying to build functional functionality into a system. This is why we have the, I call it two sides of the same coin. We have functional requirements on one side, assurance requirements on the other. And, and that is pretty consistent in almost every type of requirement. If you put a spec out, here's what I want you to build for me. And then you bring back what you built. And I say, well, how do I know that you built the right stuff? We have processes called verification and validation. Did you build the system or the product correctly? Verification. And is it fit for purpose? Can you put steel on target? Validation. So all of this, all this stuff we call assurance is something that goes on the black box that we have no transparency, no understanding of. So when you couple this, with the complex systems that we're building, we're talking about trillions of lines of code, billions of devices, ubiquitous connectivity all around the globe, and a total dependence on that technology for our economic and our national security interests and survival. 
you have a big problem that's going to demand the best and the brightest minds to try to solve these difficult and challenging problems. That's really what keeps me going every day because this is a problem that is now coming to the forefront. You're seeing the S-bomb work. We're trying to say, okay, what is industry producing? We're not saying you're producing bad stuff. It's great stuff. We love it. We buy a ton of it. But I need to know if I'm a systems engineer and I'm building a system to a set of requirements and specifications, and I have a choice between two commercial products. Sometimes you only get a choice between one or two products. I've got to know enough about that product to say, do I want the operating system that's 100 million lines of code? Or do I want one that's only 10 million lines of code? We call it, you know, the, the smaller OS that doesn't do as much, but it's very targeted. Right. Those are the kinds of design decisions and trade space decisions that system engineers go through every day. So my point Absolutely. is too much time above the waterline can be a detrimental thing if you're ignoring the engineering work that goes on on the foundations. Like building a house on a flawed foundation can look great from the living room up to the second floor. But if there's termites eating the basement and all the lumber down there, it's not going to end well. Well, and talk about, I mean, you know, talk about a black box. I'm not even sure if a black box is a big enough metaphor for the S-bomb problem. So for those that are not familiar, software bill of materials is a, is a hot topic at the time of, of this recording, uh, post solar winds, um, breach and, uh, all of the issues that surrounded, uh, that, that activity, um, you know, one of the things that came out of that, out of a very large executive order was all of the dependencies and libraries that are sort of used and called in the process of making modern software are pulled from all over the place. And a lot of software development these days is just sort of bolting a lot of this stuff together, libraries right. and things that you can call on that have been developed elsewhere, open source from wherever. And you don't always know what is inside of those or where they're coming from or which dependencies they have and so on and so on. So you can see the sort of web of the fog of software development that sort of envelops your end product very quickly. And when it turned out that um, those dependencies were compromised in the process of developing SolarWinds software that was then uh, configured and installed inside of some very sensitive areas of the U.S. government, Everybody said, what do you mean we don't know what the dependencies are? What do you mean we can't see them? What do you what do you mean? And so sort of has brought the idea of a software bill of materials to the forefront. But obviously, you know, outside of designing systems, I think with, you know, security controls around hardware, software, system design, you know, a, a, a very large web of software dependencies. This is even a larger and more complex system. Same, same problem, but, you know, almost like another universe of of complexity at that point. I mean, yeah, to your point, very interesting problem, but daunting in its, in its scale. Very much so. Well, you know, it points out the, the very kind of basic fact is that you can do almost anything with a computer. If, if the conditions are right and you have the right uh, software, the right connectivity, and the fact that our connectivity is ubiquitous now, the solar ones was, was just, we, we knew that, could happen. It's just when it does happen, it kind of brings it into focus. Yeah. And we typically react the same way. Everybody runs with their hair on fire trying to put the fire out. And then we, we kind of do a retrospective for a few days and we say how bad it was and what we can do to make it better. 
and then pretty much the next week we're on with the next uh, the next greatest technology. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's uh... you know we're just kind of addicted. I think part of this is we we love technology, all of us, and I believe we kind of get addicted to it. And then addiction is kind of gives us a huge blind spot because every every CEO knows their company uh, could be subject to a ransomware attack or a cyber attack that could bring them down, but a lot of them say, if it hadn't happened to me yet, then I'm not going to worry about it, or I'm going to worry about it, and I'll do as much as I can do, but I still got to do business. That's right. And I understand that because the bottom line is the bottom line. But I think what a lot of people don't realize today is that these cyber attacks have gotten so sophisticated. The good ones, they can be operating in your network, and you never, ever know they're there. Uh, most of these, when you go back and try to find out how long those adversaries have been rumbling around your network, could be anywhere from seven months to two years. Right. If your if your business is the business yeah. of national security at any level, um, then a lot of times, even though it may not feel like, you know, even though you're a pawn on the chessboard of the geopolitical battles that that rage around the world, um, the goal of the types of adversaries that might be looking at you for whatever reason, either for the data that you have access to or the access that you have access to. Uh, their goal is not to be caught, right? In contrast to something like cybercrime trying to extort you or ransom you, right? Their goal is to let you know that they're there. The other guys, are, their goal is to never be caught. And so it's sort of a very different, uh, they play out in very different ways. You know, they're, they're, they're not trying to let you know that they're there at all. Yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, interesting problem. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's easy to point fingers. Uh, I, I've always been very hesitant. You can blame people for not doing fundamental blocking and tackling basic cyber hygiene. But a lot of these attacks are very, very sophisticated. Even people who do this stuff right and they think they've got their systems nailed down and really tight, protected, it can still happen. And th this is, you know, one of the things we're going to have to come to grips with. Is how do we how do we decentralize all of this stuff that we own, operate, and maintain. So that one, you know, attack doesn't bring down a kind of a single point of failure. There's a lot of right. those places that we're discovering now in critical infrastructure, especially. I remember when we had the, uh, the OPM attack, I believe it was uh, 2015, where it may have been one of the subsequent attacks. One of the first things that uh, the OMB did is they wanted to find out, and they had DHS do this, they said, uh, for all the systems that we operate, let's take a look at every system those systems are connected to. And they wanted to find out, are these all essential connections? And they found a lot of systems. First of all, they find a lot of component products they didn't know were tethered to their network. They just grow, you know, kind of organically. Right. And unless you're managing those hardware and software components very carefully. It's, it's like the softball. Them. It's like the software hairball problem, but exactly. with system components and, exactly. and external services and dependencies and things like that. Just sort of, well, like I said, same problem as SBOM, just sort of in a different, yeah. a different dimension, if you will. Exactly. So, well, they, well, found, so they found a lot of components that were, that were uh, they didn't know they had. Uh, sure. They also found a lot of system connections that they didn't know they had and also ones that were unnecessary. So just that drill alone was, you, you can, you want to reduce the complexity. This is a numbers game. And if you can reduce the number of components, products, systems, services, it's kind of the, the fundamental least functionality, least privilege to the oldest concepts in the computer security. They're still 
two of the best things you can do. Right. But if they're hard as well, they're also hard. Absolutely. Well, especially, especially if, and this is, you know, to your metaphor about above the waterline and below the waterline, if the ship is already in the water and yeah. then all of a sudden you need to go below the waterline, you're either putting it in dry dock or you're doing some underwater welding, both of which are very expensive and complicated. If you can refactor that system at all. And so, uh, you know, I think that probably is a bit of a lead in, I would say. To, so FISMA happens, we end up with a new series of documents. Eventually, if we fast forward all the way to 2015 and the hack of OPM, that is a good catalyst that leads us into conversations around NIST SP-800-171 and verification programs that have sort of started to wrap themselves around that standard. But I'd say before we get there, my, one, of my, one of my favorite parts about the 2015 hack of OPM is I believe the DNI or the CIA director, I can't remember who uh, at, off the top of my head, uh, was sort of giving testimony about what happened and uh, basically like gave props to the Chinese government and said, yeah, uh, you know, if we had the ability to do the same thing, uh, we, we totally would have done that. And so I think that that, that quote has been lost <laughs> to people's minds. The OPM hack, um, huge deal, huge deal. Solar winds level, right? Uh, massive uh, sort of wake-up call. Like you said, this sort of uh, everyone runs around with their hair on fire and then it sort of fades and then everybody runs around with their hair on fire and sort of fades. So at the time, everyone's hair is on fire with FISMA. And my understanding is that you sort of had, well, at least in my reading of the NIST publications, you had documents like 826, uh, 818, 14, and 16. This would have been yeah. under the the guise of Marianne Swanson, who I've never had the pleasure of meeting, but back in the day, she would have been, you know, driving the ship here. And then yep. FISMA comes along and we sort of see this passing through the FISMA layer and we end up with things like FIPS 199, FIPS 200, 853. How did that process work? What are those documents? How are they related? You know, what, what was the idea here? Well, I got a call one day uh, from our division chief, Ed Roback. And uh, FISMA had just been passed, signed by President Bush. I think it was 2003. Legislation was passed in 2002. He calls me into his office and he said, uh, Ron, I got a, I got a proposition for you. How'd you like to, to run a new project? And so uh, he told me about the legislation. You, you're always getting interesting phone calls here in your career. Yeah. I'm <laughs> Anytime the phone rings, calls. something, something's happening. So I thought this was going to be a three month project because I hadn't read the legislation in detail yet. I kind of knew generally what it looking at. But the first thing we do at NIST is when we get the phone call, when the legislation drops or an executive order, if they call us out in the legislation to do something, Department of Commerce and NIST through the DOC, we answer the call. It's like sliding down that fire pole in the fire station. So the first thing I did is I spent about three or four days, maybe even a week, going through every line of that legislation. And I was looking for call outs. What, what did they ask NIST to do specifically? And of course, they, there were three things, um, as I recall, it's been quite a long time, but they uh, required us to, to develop a standard. Now, a lot of people don't know we have standards at NIST, which are our, our federal information processing standards, they're called FIPS. And those are mandatory across the entire federal government. We have FIPS 140, the crypto standard. They asked us to develop a standard to develop minimum security requirements to protect federal information and information systems. And they also asked us to do a standard on categorizing 
information and information systems. So that was kind of our first indication. Hey, we're going to do two FIPS here. And I call these the bookend standards that really kind of surround the project. And the idea was this. Um, they didn't tell us how many categories. FIPS 199 has three impact levels, low, moderate, and high. They didn't tell us how to develop the standards or what to put in the standards, but we started out and said, okay, we're, we're going to have a minimum set of security requirements for the federal government. Now, the thing is the federal government is a huge organization. It's got hundreds and thousands of systems and applications and people. So to, to think about developing a one-size-fits-all set of standards and guidelines, that was a non-starter. We had to develop a set of standards and guidelines that were specific enough to do the job, but yet provided that inherent flexibility so organizations could kind of comply with the standards and, and, and comply with the legislation. That was the idea. NIST was kind of the middleware, or actually middleware and below, that took from legislation, which is 30,000 foot, very general, through a set of standards and guidelines that would get down to your implementation in your organization. So whatever you would do, in Department of State or, or Department of Labor would actually comply with the legislation. Right. So we started out and said, Marianne, as you mentioned, a fantastic person. She was one of the first people I met at NIST. She had developed a computer security questionnaire, 826. You mentioned 818. That was I've got the, uh, I've got a, a hard copy of it here. You I got think. a hard copy of it. I'm not sure they're worth anything, but they were, it was a good document. It was a questionnaire. And she divided the questions up in, I believe it was 17 families or 17 different topic areas. So that became kind of the essence of our, our 17 uh, security requirements, minimum security requirements. And they were things like access control, INA, contingency planning, incident response, um, system integrity. So all that's the, that was the initial set of 17 requirements. And, and when we developed that FIPS, those requirements had to be at a very general level of abstraction. And so you can see, um, I know you've talked about this a lot in, uh, in, in your discussions on 171, but some of those uh, basic requirements in 8 or 171 Rev 2 came, came right from the original FIPS 200 document. So, you know, my question have, about, yeah. my question about, let's see here. Uh, this is this is 818. I've got a copy of 26 around here somewhere, which is how I know Marianne's name because her name is all over, um, yeah, all all over these things. So, so I've always wondered this question, and I think people will probably wonder this question as well. So, FIPS 200 is the set of. Let me see if my understanding is correct. I hope it is because this is what I've told people. <laughs> so, FISMA says develop a set of minimum requirements. FIPS 200 is that set of minimum requirements. Yes. However, FIPS 200, FIPS 200 has these 17 minimum requirements, and they're really only a sentence or two. And they should sound oddly familiar to people because the sort of original version of 853 has 17 families that map yeah. to those 17 requirements. And based off the context of your organization and your risk assessment and your categorization in FIPS 189, you're supposed to select from the catalog of 853 right. in order to implement controls that meet those requirements. This is a very engineering approach to high level requirements that sort of decompose down to specific Absolutely. system and subsystem and component level 
requirements, and then they roll back up to to meet these overall requirements. So there were there are 17 requirements of FIPS 200. There were 17 families in 853, just because that was there was a team, there was a person, Marianne, and they were like, it's going to be 17, not 18, not 25, not four. It just, it just was 17, right? I'm sure that maybe we'd have to dig into the references um, of, of 826 and 818 and everything back in the day to sort of see maybe where that came from. But that was just the research at NIST that cool. led to it being 17 rather than a different number. That's correct. And then, so what you were saying was correct. Now we have all these systems across the federal government. And the first thing that we did is we said, okay, every system is important in its own context. But if you look at all the different systems and you were to rack and stack them with, with regard to priority or level of criticality, um, they're not all the same. So we said, instead of uh, how are we going to take what became this set of security controls in 853, which, as you stated, was the next level down from the requirement. So if you had a, a, a basic requirement, a minimum requirement for access control in FIPS 200, there was an AC family of security controls that allowed you to drill down to the next lower level. In other words, access control was a very broad area. Right. The access control family had, I don't know how many controls, I, I'm sure you would probably know the answer to this in that original document, but there was, there was many controls in each of the families which would allow you to implement um, on, on your on your systems, the type of protections that would allow you to satisfy that high-level requirement. Now, the way the 199 came about, the FIPS 199 was we didn't, we wanted to recognize that there were systems at various levels of importance and information. So we developed the 199. We, we debated whether it should be seven levels or five levels or three. And we went back to a fundamental uh, kind of a concept in, in nature and in science called the triage. Battlefield medicine. You know, you treat the sucking chest wounds before the hangnails. And so we came up with three impact levels and we ended up developing a set of baseline security controls. We call that the starter set of controls for low impact, moderate and high impact systems. So now we've given the agencies a set of high level requirements, 17. We've given them a fairly robust catalog of security controls and we've pre-selected three sets of those controls just to get them started because all we had before was a set of a questionnaire. And now we have this massive federal government with the technology kind of racing down the road. We can see that our protection levels need to be really bolstered and we're really starting from ground zero. And we have such diversity in the federal government with regard to missions and business operations and the whole nine yards. So this was the system we designed to give agencies the maximum flexibility so they could see themselves in a security solution that would fit their needs, plus allow them to comply with the high-level legislation. Yeah, And that's how the bookend standards came about, the, the catalog of controls. And then a little bit later, we developed the risk management framework. And that's, that was a part of, I call that the full-service framework, because once you have controls, and what are you going to do with them now? Well, you have to implement. You've got to you got right. to assess to see if they're effective. So that spawned the risk management framework uh, to give the organizations not just a bunch of stuff laying on the floor, but a process to follow. A lot. It's it's kind of an engineering approach. It doesn't go as deep as an SDLC, but you can see from that framework, it's very much 
a life cycle type of process. It's very intuitive. I mean, if you were going to try to reverse engineer, you know, how there's a big catalog of controls that we could possibly implement. How do we pick them? Probably based off our risk and our context. And then someone might implement them. It could be us or someone that we hire. How will we know if they're implemented? You have to assess and verify. And then, and then what? We've got this report. Somebody needs to make a decision and authorize that this is what we needed. And then afterwards, you're not just going to close the door and never look at it again. You got to monitor it on an ongoing basis. And then if anything changes, reassess it or possibly start the process all over again. I mean, it's a, at a very, very simplistic level. I mean, it's a pretty intuitive set of steps here. It's not, it's not, well, I would say that in my experience, having lived in the RMF world and having read many, many agency IG reports about their struggles with the process, it doesn't seem to me that it is the comp, the complexity of the process itself that seems to be the problem. It seems to be uh, people well, or we've, cultures we've or whatever, you know, it happens to be. Uh, the, the RMF process by itself is relatively straightforward. Right. Um, and, we, you know, we've gotten our share of criticism over the years. I, I mean, you hear this all the time. We're where, uh, you know, the risk management framework and the controls are considered compliance-based process and not really oh, addressing yeah. security. But, um, you know, the, the bottom line is that every agency has the ability to manage its own risk. In fact, FISMA requires every, the head of every agency, federal agency, to be responsible for managing risk. And that, so while they're not making those individual tailoring decisions on whether they're tossing out some controls or moving some in, Someone is doing that on their behalf. And, you know, you hope you have good people making those kinds of implementation decisions. And again, it's not a perfect world. You know, the authorization decision is always about, have I done enough to, to manage the threat space that I know I'm up against? And can I do that and feel good about those decisions, realizing that there is no perfect security? And you're, right. you know, you can do a terrific job of picking the right controls. And then, like you said before, the adversary comes up with something new that you didn't expect, and bam, right. you're right back into the breach again. So that's kind of how it all came together. And, uh, you know, the uh, 53 Alpha document came about because we needed to have specific procedures to assess the security controls. And that's how that document uh, came into being. And as you said before, when we came to 2015, um, and the 171 project emerged. We can talk about how that came about, but... Most of the stuff that we took from to into 171 had its roots, and you talked about this a lot in your, in your podcast from the 853 and all of the FISMA series of publications, yeah. because that's where we had, that's where right. we had in the inventory. That's what we knew. And I, you know, this is a, this is, you know, I sometimes call it, you know, learning, learning 800-171 the hard way, if you will, because uh, without that background context about what 53 is, why it's structured the way it's structured, the context in which it's supposed to operate, the catalysts for its development and what existed before it came together. If you just look at 800-171 in a vacuum, it can be pretty uh, strange in terms of why it's written that way, why it's structured that way, why it says what it says versus what it doesn't say. And for me, I think that uh, that gives me some specific questions that we can get into in a moment about... you know, design decisions for the document, right? Why, why did we leave certain things out rather than other things compared to its big brother in 853? I had just a couple of questions, I guess, before we move on from, uh, you know, pre-171 world. So you mentioned that there was some talk about, you know, the, the number of categories in FIPS 200. 
And this directly leads to the structure and substance of 171 because there is only a low, moderate, and high baseline. And I remember reading the Federal Register entry uh, that, you know, when it when we published that FIPS 200 was coming out and the public was going to submit their comments, there were some comments that said, should there be more than three levels, <clears throat> low, low, moderate, and high? And, right. you know, just like your response here, I believe the response there said, we don't need that extra level of granularity. And I think that uh, one of the things that people are wrestling with in the world of 800-171 is that because it is derived from the moderate baseline, the sort of policy decision was, well, the low baseline is too low. The high baseline is too high. We have the moderate baseline. But the moderate baseline has grown much like the 853 catalog. It's grown tremendously over the years. I don't know the exact number. Uh, I, I, I feel ashamed. I should know the number. I do know. I do know that the original 853 catalog in its entirety had fewer controls than the 853 Rev4 moderate baseline has yeah, controls. True. And so the document has grown by, you know, uh, a significant amount. And so, you know, sort of two questions on FIPS 200. Do you feel like the low, moderate, high triage approach to baselines at this core headwater of a document is still sufficient? And because there were, there are 17 requirements in FIPS 200, but there are now more families in 853, program management, privacy, things like that. Does that mean that FIPS 200 is, is due for an update and, and to be expanded? If we're going to expand the number of requirements, should there be more granularity in the number of baselines? Yes. The answer, your second question first, we have a project that is on the, in the queue right now to update FIPS 200. Obviously, 53 got out ahead of FIPS 200. It was kind of the other way around. But now that we've expanded the families, we're going to relook at FIPS 200. At a minimum, we're going to make that aligned with 853. So there'll be there'll be at least three new requirements. So privacy is a little bit different, but we're going to have to work with that um, to, to bring it up to code, so to speak. Now, the 199, as far as number of levels, this was a design decision, and we had to balance. Sometimes you can over-engineer a problem. And we looked at having five levels versus three, and we ended up saying, you know, we could have five or seven levels, but the more levels you get, the less distinction you have when you move from one level to the next. So we wanted to make something that was easy enough to work with and still did the job. Now, I think I still think today, uh, we were we were talking about this just a, a month or two ago on whether we should update 199, and I think we've come to the conclusion that um, three is still about the right number. We haven't heard anybody in our customer community say, "Hey, you know, we really need a another two levels." If we were to do that, we would probably have something above high impact that would represent mm, okay. those those really really. Uh, critical assets and systems. Well, I feel like if if tailoring is a natural, inherent part of of interacting with the 853 catalog, you probably don't need more than three categories okay. because if moderate is too big, you can tailor it. If low is too low, but moderate is still too big, you can tailor, right? And so okay. I feel okay. like you, me personally, I feel like you don't need more than low, moderate, and high as long as people understand and execute proper tailoring. If if no one's going to tailor, then it puts a lot of pressure on FIPS 189 and 200 to stand in for that work, which was built to facilitate a flexible approach and process. So yeah, I feel like, sure. you know, maybe, you know, the, the emphasis is really on the tailoring. And I, I sort of stress this point because 
we're going to get into the tailoring decisions for 800-171 Rev3. And, and this gets back to why understanding FIPS 200 and FIPS 189 FISMA is so important because tailoring is the essence of how to interact with these NIST controls. Well, the one thing uh, we also, in addition to that highest level, uh, maybe that above high, we also looked at, is there anything below low? In other words, when you look at impact levels, low impact means there's limited adverse impact on the organization. There's a breach. Uh, moderate is, um, is well, high as severe or catastrophic, and the moderate level is serious impact. So we have the words that kind of correspond to the three levels. There have been some people who ask, well, what about information that's not, it has no value or doesn't, it has no impact if it's compromised? That would be below low impact. But in OMB A130, um, it says all federal information has value and must be protected. So that kind of steered us away from having any level that was kind of a no-op level. Um, that could be, there could be a lot of mischief that could happen when you have that kind of a level. And so we didn't want to go down that road. So I think sure. we're going to stick with three for, for that uh, purpose. I don't know if you're going to ask the, I know you've asked this question um, in some of your uh, podcasts about uh, some of the design decisions over the course of 853, like yes, we used to have yes, yes, categories I... of controls and, yeah, um, so yeah. I would love to, yeah, and I, I want to ask these before we get into 171, because right, then right. it'll make sense when I ask why they're not in 171. So sure. the biggest one I would say, just to set the context of why 853 is structured the way it is, is that federal agencies existed before FISMA, and there wasn't a lot of security happening. And so right. when this process of selecting controls, tailoring controls, what eventually became the RMF, 853 doesn't have a lot of treatment for executive enterprise-wide, you know, program management, not until much later in the revisions does there a program right. management family. And my yeah. understanding is, is that's because agencies exist. Agencies have leadership. They have an enterprise and, and the documents, FIPS 29, FIPS 200, 853 that came out of the FISMA catalyst were designed to be set into the context of federal agencies, not exactly. to teach federal federal agency. We're not we're not starting federal agencies from scratch. They have these existing structures and budgets and leadership and risk and enterprise and so on and so forth. So, eight hundred. If you just look at eight hundred fifty three, all of that's missing. Uh, not because uh, it was an oversight, but because it was designed to work in a specific context, and so. Uh, there's also some specific questions, but as we then derive standards from 853, do you feel like that philosophy, that design philosophy, that original context of 853 influences the way that derivative standards like 800-171 walk and talk and look and feel? I think to some degree that's a very good assessment because uh, there, there was some, again, we go back to fundamental assumptions. And as you said, our understanding was every federal agency has been around, they're working, they're operating, they've got some foundation that they're building the security program on top of. And that really led, uh, that, that kind of same, that same type of thinking carried over into 800-171. I know we're going to get a little bit deeper into how the tailoring uh, process came about, but 
Uh, I would say it's a fair, a fair point. That, uh, and this is, I would say this sort of touches your above the waterline, below the waterline example, right? I mean, I think that the FIPS 29, FIPS 200, 853, very above the waterline because they weren't designed. There was our, the ship was already at sea at this point. And so right. when you, not that this is what NIST intended, but when you take a derivative from that set of uh, documents and you drop it into environments that do not have those programs or risk uh, perspective or leadership buy-in or budget, it would break just like if you dropped the FISMA trio of documents into an agency that had allowed termites to erode the, the foundation. And so this, I think, brings up a philosophical question about what are the roles of the documents. And this is a, this is sort of a, a debate, not a debate, but a, a question that I've posed to the defense industry many times over the years is what do, what is the role of these documents? If you are looking at 853 as a guide to teach you how to establish an information security program at an enterprise level, you are looking in the wrong place because it is designed to work in the context of one of those overall programs. So a derivative from 853 will also not teach you how to establish an information security program. It would do probably even less. And so now everyone is sort of looking to these standards more and more 853, more and more 800-171 for various reasons saying, this doesn't teach me how to establish an information security program. And I always say, well, that's not really a fair criticism of these standards because that's not what they were designed to do. No, it's a, it's a fair point. And I think uh, we have a lot of people who um, would like us to give implementation guidance on all the controls as well. And when you get into that, uh, it's almost a bottomless pit of the type of technologies that you could have to address. And each control has been designed to be technology and policy neutral for the most part. We, we kind of straight over the line a couple of times, but we pulled back uh, those few instances. But that's what controls are supposed to be. They're, they're supposed to be technically correct and implementable. But when you talk about a Windows environment or a Linux environment or the, just a multitude of different technologies where those controls could be applied, even at the application level or the operating system level, uh, these controls can work their way into almost every part of the stack. And they have a different context when they're being implemented at those different levels. Sure. The same basic concept of access control or INA is still in play. But right. Um, well, yeah, so, it's, it's very sorry. Yeah, sorry to, to cut you out. So, so on the idea of specific implementation guidance, that is always a constant thing. Now, what I will say is maybe these details of characteristics in 853 that have come and gone over the years that I find to be very interesting. And you wouldn't necessarily notice if you hadn't looked at, you know, all six versions of 853 that we have over the years. So right. a lot of people today are familiar with control families access control, configuration management, so on and so forth. However, for a long time, since the beginning of 853, there were also control classes in which these families of controls were categorized by operational or technical or management level. And that doesn't give you implementation guidance, but it does give you some context around the level at which these controls are intended to exist. But over time, control classes went away from 853. And now a lot of times when, when I've worked with folks in industry, that missing context 
isn't all that helpful for them. So what was the reason that they were included? What was the reason that they went away? And, you know, are those reasons still valid? Should we revisit them? You know, it's a, it's a very good question. We, when we had, uh, when, when we made the decision to remove those, well, they, they re- originally were put in to kind of group the controls in, in logical areas that could help people implement. And in the big organization, you got lots of different people who were involved in the security controls effort under the CISO. I just want to pause, pause right there to let the, yeah. the viewers know to put your pitchforks down, right? NIST has <laughs> over the years tried to within the within the constraint of keeping controls as flexible as possible to be vendor and technology neutral and ultimately fair they have tried to create constructs to help you with context around implementation so just i just want to make that clear to everyone listening that leave ron ross alone right they have been trying so it's a difficult problem please continue so, so the so that that's the rich, the reason why they were there originally now over time we discovered and we probably knew this all the time, but we, we kind of erred on the side of our customers and helping them, helping them implement uh, in the easiest way possible. We found that every control had aspects of management, operational, and technical. For example, AC2, account management, there's a lot of, there's technology. Obviously, it's in the technical control family, but there's a lot of management and operational things that go on when you're implementing that technical control. So we made a decision that instead of grouping the controls, which may isolate certain individuals. So if you're, if you're in the old days, AC2, technical control, that means there's a technical person likely mm-hmm. going to be assigned to in charge of making sure that was implemented. But what happens with all the management and operational aspects of that control that other people may have a vested interest in? So again, it was a design decision. We decided sure. to take those labels away. And, and force people to look at the controls in a multi-dimensional approach or aspect. Sure. Which I think and, is, and so you know, that, I think that's that a very understandable, that's a very understandable approach, but uh, let's, let's maybe, let's maybe table that one for now, move on to a different one. 853 used to have P codes. They used to have yes. priority codes, which <laughs> specifically are described as if you were going to have to implement these requirements, this is a general, very high level you know, rough, broad stroke indication that these would come before these would come before these, and these controls would probably come last. And there's some room for interpretation, but this is just a general construct, again, everyone listening at home, to try and help add context around what order in which the controls appear. Because 853 describes the fact that the ordering and sequence of the controls in the catalog is not intended to tell you that one is more important than the other or that one should come before the other. The only reason that access control comes first, according to my reading, is because alphanumerically, AC comes first. And so uh, when people flip open 853 and they skip the first three chapters over the last 20 years and they just start reading AC1 and AC2, they go, what the heck is going, like, what is this? What is this? What does this mean? So the P codes were a construct to say P0, P1, P2, P3, and those have gone away. What was the rationale for P codes, rationale for going away? Should that be revisited? This is the first time that I think the public will will get a, a reading of why those P codes emerge. So we're going to break some news on your podcast. Oh, man. Oh, boy. 
Some Over the exclusive. Years. Well, you, I'm not sure you remember the days um, when um, the Sands Institute and my friend Alan Paller, um, who passed away uh, last year, a great loss to our community. Alan used to come to NIST routinely and say, you know what? I love the NIST catalog of controls, but there's too many controls. People can't do them all. So he said, I want, I would like you to prioritize the controls. And I, and I fought him for years. We used to have epic battles in public. We were, we respected each other, but we had this disagreement. I didn't believe the control should be prioritized because I thought that every control they're, they're kind of, these controls are not independent in the sense that they are, they, there's dependencies amongst many controls and they're kind right. of a, they get deployed as a set. It's like in the military, when you're digging a foxhole, you have overlapping fires if you're in the infantry. And so that was the same concepts. So I fought him for years and years and years. So he decided, well, I'm done going out talking to Ron on this. I'm going to develop 20 critical controls. Oh, and that's no. where it stands. Yes. Oh no, that's this was your fault. Framework yes, so for all is your fault, Ron? The Sands went out under Alan's leadership and they developed the, the top 20 controls and they, they became very successful. So as soon as they did that, I said, okay, now, now we're kind of in trouble <laughs> because we, we have this huge catalog and now Alan's got this really narrow set of 20 controls and he had a rationale for why each one of those 20, you know, controls were, sure, were really a higher priority. So we went back and rethought it and I said, okay, Maybe I was wrong. <laughs> and I told him this many years later. Um, people used to think we had these great battles and we didn't like each other, but we always had respect for each other. He's a really wonderful person, contributed so much to the business. And I, I'm really sorry that he's not still contributing, obviously. But so I went back and said, okay, we got to fix this. So we developed the, the P code concept and we went through every control in the catalog and we said, we did the triage. Is it priority one? Two or three, or I think we had a no op category. Yeah, too. zero. Yeah, yeah, P zero. So that was the genesis of why it was put in. So it's it's off and running now. We got the P codes. Well, then the next rev comes up a few years later, and I said, you know what? My original philosophy on this thing was that people think that let's take the top twenty controls, the Sands top twenty. We could we could there were direct mappings to the NIST catalog of those same twenty, and they they kind of uh, kind of, I guess, grouped around things like, um, well, making sure you know what's in your inventory, the network, the software, the hardware inventory, um, scanning and all the things that were kind of fundamental that most organizations would would think were top priority. And SANS had done some research and said, hey, you know, if you do these 20 controls, you'll stop 80% of the cyber attacks. And that's fine. I was worried about the 20% that it wouldn't stop, though. Sure. So we went back and said, okay, I used an example of the contingency planning control that certainly was never in the SANS top 20. But I said, in a modern organization, if you don't have a good contingency plan, you know with 100% certainty that you're going to get hit with a cyber attack. The only thing you don't know is when and how bad it's going to be. Sure. So to me, that the ability to have a good contingency plan, execute that plan, test it, make sure it's working was every bit as important as doing two-factor authentication and having access controls. Right. And so I went back to my original, my gut reaction was, hey, if we tell the people the these the P1s are the only thing or the most important, then what they're going to do is they're going to go and do all the P1s first, and then if they have any money left, they'll go to P2s and P3s. 
that's not an unreasonable strategy. That's how most organizations approach the problem. It's just like vulnerabilities. What do we do with all these hundreds right. and thousands of, we rack and stack them, cat one, right. cat two, cat three, do the critical vulnerabilities first and patch those. So that was another design decision. I think it was Rev four. Maybe we we took those out. Maybe it was Rev five. I think it was Rev four. Though. Yeah, the uh, the community seems split. It's like old Metallica, new Metallica. Were you exactly. Rev three guy? Oh, are you a Rev four and on guy? So not that not that well, new Metallica is bad. It's just different. It's just different. So so that was you know so both of those areas that you picked up on, um, and I, I really was anxious to talk about those because they looked like arbitrary decisions, but there was a lot of thought that went into putting all that sure. in. And taking it out. Now, whether it was the right decision, look, much of the things we do in cybersecurity, there's a lot of subjectivity here. There are a lot of decisions that are made. I don't think anybody can categorically say that any decision is 100% correct or 100% wrong. Oh, yeah. And this is not, this is not to say that the decisions were right or wrong. It's just that when you read the catalog and, and if you read them closely, the decision, the changes stand out pretty strongly, but there isn't necessarily a rationale given in the document, which is why I was so excited to talk to you from my perspective, if I could have interjected between this great wizard battle between you and, 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 and the ultimately became the SANS document, it's not necessarily in my perspective that the priority codes are in, I know that this is, they would be interpreted as just do the P ones and then we may get to the rest. It's that I've talked to a lot of program managers who don't know where to start. And so as a result, when the catalog of 853 or derivatives like 171 are structured alphanumerically to be this blank slate of marble. They're not Michelangelo. They don't know where to start chipping away. And so when I see constructs like priority codes or constructs like control classes, maybe it says, well, not that these are more important, but that if you, if you're going to start somewhere, this is the, this is the place to start. And so one of the other constructs that I uh, remember is the um, the assessment cases that NIST used to write for 853 controls, where it was they were sort of like high level examples of if you were going to step through the um, 853 assessment uh, determination statements for a particular control, this is what it might look like. They were very high level and very general, but the part of them that stands out to me is the sequencing listed at the bottom of them. And if you sort of draw out all of the sequencing, it sort of shows that when you start assessing these controls, you don't start with access control. You don't start with audit and accountability. You start with planning. You start with risk assessment. You start with the control families that are in the back of the book. And intuitively, that makes sense. And so, you know, one, why did NIST stop doing sort of um, generic example assessment cases? And, you know, if we aren't going to use the, the the priority construct, you know, why did we abandon sequencing the document from the from the top down, if you will, from from where the decisions to pick and choose and 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 configure controls come from? Planning, risk assessment, rather than AC and I AU think, families. Right. I think in general, uh, some of these decisions were also driven by the documents were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and. You know, like it or not, I remember Alan, when I used to go to a, an agency and he would be also there, you know, speaking or one day he brought in the agency. see each other in the parking office. lot? Just... Yeah. And he, he would bring in the document, the, the, the hard copy, and he would 
I remember one day he, I think he brought in 53 Alpha, and it was like the New York Telephone Directory. He would, he dropped it on the table like a thud, and he said, "Nobody can understand everything that's in this document." So there's, there was some sensitivity on our part to make sure we give good guidance, but uh, we, we, the more and more things you put in, the documents were getting bigger and bigger. So you're kind of torn between providing those examples, and we, we started to steer clear of providing any examples, even in our. If you remember the the supplemental guidance or the, or the discussion sections under the controls, we used to. If you go back to the early days, we had a lot of examples. And, oh yeah, and, oh yeah. And what they're strikingly is, different. They're they're very they different. What happened there is that, and, and this is human nature. It's not a criticism, but when you put examples in a document like a control catalog, people will go to use those examples and say, if you're not in that mix, then anything else outside that is not in play. And so the, the EGs of the four examples were never interpreted as being just examples. I mean, it says and it, so we, you've said it in every control document I've ever read. These are, these are informative. They are not normative. And probably every other month I get the question, the discussion section sounds like it's requiring more than what the control says. And I'm like, they yeah. are informative. They are not normative. So even today in the much less uh, detailed examples or even descriptions of the control in 853 Rev 5, Rev 4, people still sort of uh, take those discussion sections and use those as a proxy for what the control is asking for. You know, I, that's true. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I'm not sure you also observe uh, in the early versions of uh, 53, in our discussion section, supplemental guidance, we actually had embedded requirements that kind of snuck into the discussion. Right. And so I remember, I think it was Rev 3, we did a line-by-line -line review of every uh, supplemental guidance section, and we stripped out every sentence that could be interpreted as an actual requirement. They were kind of implied requirements. And there's a lot of stuff that came out of those supplemental guidance sections that even I hadn't realized were kind of implied requirements. And, and, you know, when an IG or, you know, someone at GAO looks at the requirement and they read the supplemental guidance, if it's in a missed document, they could say that, hey, that impl that implied requirement is, is maybe implied, but it's there and you need to follow that. You need to comply with that. Yeah. So we had to be very careful. We try to make sure that we're not putting our agencies at risk with the IGs or the auditors coming for whether they're not being held to um, requirements or parts of the controls that really were structurally this is, intended. This is, this is a, a domain of security that I find fascinating. It's like it's it is it is inherently connected to this world of GRC controls, right. engineering requirements. I mean, the process of requirements engineering as a discipline of engineering gets to this same problem. There's been books written on requirements engineering where the psychology of people reading your requirements and the psychology of people writing them and the language and words that you use to describe a requirement, that is a very, uh, that is, that is a, uh, I mean, that's a whole other world, right? I mean, this, I've always made the joke, uh, sometimes at, at, you know, taking a shot at NIST that, you know, maybe, maybe fewer PhDs, maybe more technical writers could help. With this problem, I don't know if that's a fair assessment. It makes people laugh, and so you know, it gets them listening. Yeah, but th this feels like a very sort of this feels like a linguistics problem almost more than a the, the than a computer science problem. I mean, as much as you can separate them. Well, and you know, we didn't talk about. I know this is going to come up with one seventy one R three, 
is the uh, organization defined parameters at some point. Uh, and this rolls back to the early days when some of the controls had specific numbers in them. Like if you have, uh, you know, login attempts and you fail three times, we had the numbers hardwired into the uh, controls. Mm-hmm. Um, the decision was made back then. We wanted to make sure that these controls really were policy uh, neutral and technology neutral. So that was kind of the genesis of putting in these uh, organization-defined parameters. Part of this is from a background in computer science, too. You deal with programming languages. You know there's variables in, of course. in programming languages. So it, it'll this is why I've always find it, I have always found it so strange when people uh, uh, attempt to criticize uh, NIST controls as, a, like you mentioned earlier, as a compliance problem. There are no specifics baked in to these controls. The variables are undefined. And so you don't have this problem of arbitrary parameters being set into a standard for to which you have to comply for the sake of complying and you have to just sort of deal with it. I mean, that's that's not how right. the controls are written. So it, it, that it has never made sense to me. Now, the other thing is that it gave it gave organizations, and I use the term organization, this could be OMB. Let's say OMB um, in a policy came down and said, we want you to do system backups every two weeks. This is an example. That, that OMB policy then would drive the instantiation of that organization-defined parameter. Right. And so we didn't want to be, we, we don't make policy, uh, or we don't want to be the ones like at DHS where they come down with a binding operational directive. That's their job. The controls had to be flexible enough to take those kinds of inputs. And if there was no legislation or regulation or policy level directive that would force the organization, the federal agency, to instantiate that variable, then they could take on that role themselves. And and, and this is how let, and this is see. how the controls are risk informed, because if it's not yes. driven by an external requirement, then you get to based off your risk determine what those variables are. And so Absolutely right. I think yeah, a lot of people, you know, like we'll talk about in the formatting changes for the Rev3 draft are curious. Who is the mysterious organization that they keep referring to? And it, it depends on the context, right? In, yes. in you know, and we'll, we'll get into that. I, I just want to sort of finish this, this line of thought on changes to 53 because it's relevant to the way that 171 is designed. So one of the other structures that was in 853 up until Rev5 was the language at the start of a control statement that would say the organization, blah, 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 and the system, blah, 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 blah. And that has been taken out. And now it has been not relegated, but it is now in an appendix of 853, where it says these controls used to say the system does a thing. These controls used to say the organization does a thing. And this, again, was a change, according to the text of 853, in the name of flexibility. Do you think that um, that was causing similar problems to these other structures that have been removed? And, uh, you know, was that not the right or wrong decision, but is that a good decision so far? Yeah, again, a design decision. And it, it's kind of in the same category as the management operational technical. When we did the change, the, uh, the, the motivation was to make the controls more outcome-based. In other words, we didn't really care if the system carried out that function or the organization carried out the function. A lot of the things that were in the operational and management area would be more organization-driven types of controls. The system 
uh, starting the controls with the system, you would find those clustering more around the technical controls, which would be the access control, INA, um, the uh, things in that kind of that audit controls and things you'd find right. typically in hardware, software, and firmware. So when you make a control outcome based, uh, the, the decision was made that we didn't really care if it was a system or an organizational start to that. We really cared about what actually occurred in the control. And again, we found just like in management, operational, and technical, some controls have aspects of all three of those. We also found a considerable number of controls that were not just system-focused. And again, it was the same uh, criticism we got for the management, operational, and technical. They said, okay, when you divided things up into organization and system, when those controls came rolling into the agency, there was a group that attacked the system ones, and there was a group that attacked the organization. Everybody was happy. But the problem is what happens in the hybrid case where a control has, obviously it's implemented in the system like the AC2 control, but there are management and operational aspects to that that the organization has to, uh, has to look at. So again, we removed those terms and we focused on the outcome, hoping and anticipating that the organization would bring both groups together. So the responsibilities from the techies and the non-techies would come together to make sure all aspects of that control were taken into account. Now, sure. whether that worked or not, it's well, probably a mixed bag. And this is, yeah, this is the interesting thing, I think, in that, you know, the psychology of security, um, one of the things that I've been fascinated with is this idea of surrogation. And this occurs not just in security. This occurs any time that there are metrics used to measure something, famously in the Wells Fargo fraud case, um, or, you know, there's, there's lots of examples. When people uh, are given metrics, and their goal is the metrics, they often use the metrics as a surrogate for what the metric is supposed to measure. And so you might focus on positive customer survey results as the end goal, rather than good customer experience that leads to positive surveys, right? And so this seems to be a natural thing. I'm not a psychologist, but my amateur reading seems to suggest that it is a flaw in the human brain. When we are given metrics, we fixate on those metrics. We use them as a as a surrogate. This, I believe, yeah. leads to this debate about compliance versus security, because when you define a subset of controls, people use that subset as a surrogate for the idea of security, which then causes this artificial debate in the security community where they go, controls and compliance are the problem. And you're like, it wouldn't matter if you gave them one control or a hundred controls, the human brain will fixate on those metrics as what do I need to do? Similar to, you yeah. know, I wasn't, I wasn't a Navy SEAL. I did my PT test once a year, right? I met the metric. I don't know if my fitness level was necessarily the best. I met the baseline. Doesn't necessarily mean my emergent property of security was the best. Same problem. However, when you add in things, and this is me adding my, my perspective here based off what you've said. If you add in control classes, if you add in priority codes, if you add in assessment case examples and sequencing, if you add in org organization and system at the beginning, you added in all of these descriptions, people will use those as handholds to say, that is what this control must be. But the goal of NIST is to make them as flexible and outcome-based as possible. So you necessarily have to get rid of those things over time. Is that a fair way of describing sort of how cool. they've evolved? It's very fair. Um, you know, I, I think you could go either way on those. And I think there are a lot of people in the category that you just described that need those kind of 
markers or I'm not going to call it handholding because it's kind of a pejorative, but I meant handhold as in the same thing is rather true than handhold as in skipping yeah. to the park. <laughs> well, the same thing is true for common controls and system specific and hybrid controls too. You have that same problem. And I know this is going to get into the world of 171 too. When you have the, uh, sometimes the, the, the organization, uh, the federal organization who is outsourcing things, this happens in the world of FedRAMP and cloud computing. Where people think once I've outsourced that to the cloud provider that my responsibilities are done. When in reality, every control has a, an organization context of the federal government. And it also has a context in that cloud service provider's environment. And there are specific things that have to occur on both sides to make right. sure that control is implemented properly. Right. And that gets lost. And it's becoming a bigger issue because more and more things get outsourced now. Oh, yeah. And uh, this is going to be a 171 issue, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. It, you know, so just to wrap up this sort of segment on things that have come and gone in 853, there's also um, this idea, fundamental in my mind, of functionality versus assurance. And it used to be much more apparent in 853 which controls had a, a check next to them as saying, this is a control that facilitates assurance or not. That has also been moved to an appendix where now you have to flip to the back to say this control is an assurance control which we've gotten rid of it if you will is that reason also because they're too um you know that that spectrum of functionality to assurance is too hard to nail down to say this is or is not something related to assurance is that is that why that that has gone away you know, that, again, a great question. I think this one is a little easier to answer. I think the, the kind of the raw answer is that people just didn't really care whether it was a functional or a short. Well, they're wrong. I'll let them know that. They're wrong. Cause it's, well, I, so just, is, just to pause right there. I would love your opinion when you get done. It seems to me when I started 15 years ago, information assurance was it's, was it respected as a discipline, as a facet of the world of security? And it seems that the term cybersecurity and the uh, incessant rush for more technical functionality and complexity has eaten the world to the point where this balance, this, this continuum of functionality to assurance that is described very clearly in 853 seems to have shifted completely away from the world of assurance. And now that is resulting in these regulatory approaches, you know, people struggling to figure out how do I know if I have assurance over my supply chain, my software, my data, my, it, it seems to be that we've just sort of gone completely into left field and, and we're, we're no longer viewing assurance and functionality in a balance. I realize that's a huge rant of a question, but you know, when every time no. I think back to 853 indicating that assurance and functionality are an inherent part on a control by control basis, and then you zoom out and you see no one seems to be concerned with assurance, like you said. That's mind-boggling to me. Yeah, it's the the reason assurance appears in the NIST documents is I, I brought this kind of with me from my previous work in the common criteria and also um, at NSA. Assurance in the old Orange Book was was a huge deal. Now I've said that I think we've lost at least two generations of computer security professionals who even understand what assurance is or how it's, why it's important. And that's not a criticism because it, it's, it's, it stems from, 
education in the universities and how we teach computer security and all the things that we think are important. Assurance is just dropped off the, the back of the truck, so to speak. I've tried to carry it forward. It's even in 800 big time, trustworthiness and assurance. And again, strange, this kind of circles back to our initial part of the conversation about above the waterline, below the waterline. Assurance is a huge deal below the waterline. It's no secret that in the common criteria, a whole volume was, was dedicated to functional requirements, computer security functions, access control, encryption. But another whole volume was dedicated to assurance requirements. And people tend to think today that assurance is nothing more than doing some simple testing. But in reality, assurance has two different dimensions to it. One is called design analysis, where you're looking at the design of the code, the system, the software. And the other aspect is testing and evaluation. And testing and evaluation has, again, different levels of rigor. There's black box testing where you have no information about the internals and you're just giving stimulus, getting a response back. Gray box testing where you have a little bit of information about the internals and white box where you have all the design documentation. That's when you, when you went through an NSA evaluation, they used to sign non-disclosure agreements with the company that was taking their product through evaluation. And those evaluators, largely coming from NSA, MITRE, uh, Aerospace, and IDA, would look at the design documentation and the code. They would go down to the very lowest levels. And what you're doing is you're building an assurance case. You're building evidence that the claim that you made at the top level could actually be substantiated by how that product was designed from the very top level of the specification all the way down to the implementation level, which is the code level. Now, it's not realistic to do that with every commercial product. It's expensive, it's time-consuming, but the fact that we've lost that whole concept of assurance is a showstopper in my view, especially when you're talking about the black box that we talked about earlier. As our systems get more complex and our dependence grows even more than it is today, we are absolutely going to have to get our arms around some way, some level of determining how much trust we place in each of these commercial products. It's not going to be good enough anymore just to go at this blindly when you're putting these commercial products into critical systems, whether it's a PLC in a uh, in, in an industrial control system in a power plant, a water distribution system, or the braking system that controls your you know your critical safety functions in a or, car, or the distributed defense industrial base for that matter for, or the, for any system. It, I, I completely agree yeah. with you that the the fundamental question. If I sometimes say if it were a functionality technical functionality problem, it wouldn't be a problem at this point. We have oh, oodles yeah. of technical functionality. We have no assurance. It's water, water everywhere, and not a drop of assurance because we don't, we don't know. And so this is the, the sort of like defining characteristic of my work in the defense supply chain space for the last few years has been basically just taking 853 and its derivative 800-171 and saying, you claim to have implemented these controls. How do you know that they are implemented? How do you know they are implemented correctly, operating as intended and producing the desired outcomes. And the case that I've tried to make using the wording from 853A is that the thing that an assessor or a customer or a regulator is looking for in terms of assurance is counterintuitively, apparently, 
the same thing that a business owner is looking for because right. the, the tension between security and the economics and business of I, I'm only going to spend the next dollar that I need to spend to, in order to have security because security is a, is a unreachable emergent state. We, we necessarily have to rely on assurance mechanisms to know how do you know that you've spent your money and that it's doing something? How do you know that you've right. spent your money? Right. We, I mean, it doesn't take very long to go into an organization and ask them, what are you spending your money on from a security perspective? And there's a lot of functionality that we don't know what it does or if it's doing anything. And so we sort of get back to this need for assurance and you can see, you know, regulatory approaches sort of coming at assurance. I think that the assurance case idea that's mentioned in 53 that you mentioned is very interesting. I even reached out to you about this um, individually. My amateur research into assessment cases seems to point to, uh, uh, sorry, an assurance case. An assurance case seems to be exactly what everyone is searching for. But the academic research on assurance cases seems to be somewhat sparse. It seems to be sort of maybe specific to safety engineering, but even then, there's very few examples. Uh, there seems okay. to be very little treatment of that. Is that ripe for more development? Because I agree with you I that think, we need better assurance. Yeah, I think it is. First of all, there, it's not easy to do an assurance case. A lot of it revolves around working with industry to um, have them design. What kind of evidence do you, you want to pull out of that whole life cycle development process that can convince a customer they've done their due diligence? So, you know, these are these are difficult problems, but I think... I use the automobile industry as an analogy. You know, in the early days, we had seatbelts, airbags were optional. People could, you know, we, we've layered these features, and, and the industry has done a really good job of made, building really safe cars. Now, they don't they don't come to you and say, okay, you can buy an airbag and you have to install it yourself. There are certain things that industry has to provide for its customers, and that's not going to – you can't rely on the customer to do all of those assurance-type things because – they can't get into the black box in many cases. So the challenge is going to be in working with industry uh, as as citizens who you know are going to expect that whatever they buy, just like an automobile, there are certain safety regulations. There's fuel standards and all of that. And most people understand that you don't want to overregulate because regulation can stifle innovation. But when you're relying on every one of these types of commercial products to go into your most critical systems, there's going to have to be, I call it the balance point from, you know, where I have total transparency on one end to no transparency. We have to bring that, that left side over more toward the right side to get a little more information. Now, the SBOM work is a start to, to kind of go down that road, but how much evidence is necessary? I believe that once we start that process, that it'll become a competition within industry to say, Hey, I'm providing this much information to my customers. I'm telling you what I've done to make a safer, more secure product for you to use in whatever environment you put it into. Yeah. Um, and, and if that kind of competition can can pick up some steam, then, you know, the, the need to regulate, you know, won't be as strong. But right now, I think we're kind of in this no man's land where we're, we're, we see the problem. We understand there's a lack of transparency. There are certain things that are happening in the supply chain world and the executive orders and some of the things that are coming out of the White House and DHS. But it's not clear where, you know, where that road is headed right now or where it's going to end up. Yeah. But I, I still, that to me, going back to our first part of the discussion, that to me is the 800 pound gorilla in the room. 
how do we describe that girl? We can see it, but I need to have more information in order yeah. to make some credible risk-based decisions. And right. like you mentioned before, when you, when you assess security controls, if you're assessing an operational or management type control, you can get pretty good assurance that control. I can look at a contingency plan. I can go through it. I can take it apart. I can examine. I can interview people. But when I'm talking about access controls or encryption, stuff's in the black box. Sure. So the most I can do as an assessor is do a black box type of a test with those controls. Now, that's good stuff, but it's still, there's a glass ceiling there on that waterline that I talked about. And while all the good assessments going on within CNMC or all across the federal government, we have to be able to do two things at one time. Keep doing the cyber hygiene. Keep doing all the CMMC and the, the assessment work. But let's make a concerted effort to understand what's in the black box through a life cycle-based process that produces evidence that can build assurance cases. Yeah. I don't know what's going to be in the assurance case, but I do think we need them. And we need them desperately in order to manage risk long term. I mean, I, I agree completely. I think that the the room for research and assessment cases as applied to security as an assurance mechanism to course correct this left field turn we've taken for the last uh, decade or two is extremely important. One that I'm very interested in personally, but just to just to wrap this up in terms of how 853 has changed, I'm sort of queuing this up into our conversation about 171. Let's just paint a picture here and imagine how different an 853 control would look if we continued to use control classes, priority codes, assessment cases and sequencing descriptions, an indication of whether it was an assurance requirement or not. Those structures wrapped around an individual control would add a tremendous amount of context to a security control. Now, there are trade-offs, like you mentioned, in the sense that people will surrogate that control as an end unto itself. But this is going to lead to the discussion of when you take all of that away and even more features away as we have in 171, is there a theoretical point where we can remove too much context from a control at, at which point it becomes almost unusable, especially well, if we acknowledge the fact that, you know, uh, Famously, in uh, in the criticism of formal economics, they described homo economicus, right? This rational, self-interested actor. Sometimes I call it homonisticus, right? They, you're going to plop these controls down into an environment which has a fully informed, uh, robust risk-based program, and there's budget and so on and so forth. When none of those constructs exist and the controls have removed all of their details and we smash yeah. those two things together, um, yeah. not it, it just doesn't feel like there's enough, there's not enough fuel for the fire at that point. Well, one thing I think you can be assured of, I, I'm Vicki, uh, Victoria Pelletieri now is running that whole program and she's done a fantastic job. I think that those are the kinds of questions that if the community had some consensus and could bring back to NIST, I think it would get a fair argument. Uh, you know, how many people would, would, be required to have that kind of consensus. I don't know, but sure. it's certainly something that, you know, we never close the door on any good idea that's going to help our customers. You and hear I that, think, everybody? Everybody listening at home, put your pitchforks yeah. down. Yeah. NIST has admitted, <laughs> they've admitted that uh, that an idea was incorrect. They've, they've changed course. <laughs> They're still willing to hear, 
right? Everyone relax. Everybody pump the brakes, right? This is not the enemy here. <laughs> no, I think that that's a good point. I think, and, and of course, uh, those decisions now are going to be made by uh, you know, Vicky and, and her team. Uh, but still, they're, they're worth bringing because uh, every NIST document is, not, is never locked in concrete. It's an sure. evolutionary type of process. It does. It does seem. It does seem if you if you zoom out and you and you list all of those things that have been removed, it is quite a bit of information. And and so my question to you is, do you feel like looking back, if someone were to choose to look back at those documents, are they no longer valid ways of understanding the controls because they're not in the current revision? Do they still have meaning if somebody if somebody takes it upon themselves to go learn about the way that they used to be described? Are they are is that a valid way of thinking about the controls, even if that's not necessarily what's in the current living version of the revision of eight hundred fifty three or its derivatives? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, you know, one of the things that you brought up, um, you know, over over the last uh, you know hour or so is that there's information in those previous uh, documents that people leaned on. Um, not everybody comes into this business, you know having, you know, 10, 20 years of experience. And so when you look at a big federal organization, even a private sector organization, you're going to have a team of people there with various skills, knowledge, skills, and abilities. And sometimes having those, um, I call those guardrails or maybe um, training wheels. I don't want to sound make it sound pejorative, but those kinds of things, even if they're, what everything I said was true about the management operational technical and the P codes, all that can be true, and it could be useful information for people. Yeah. So I think that's where I would leave it. I agree. And well, so moving into the concept of 171, we can sort of see the same phenomenon happen because one of the fundamental characteristics of the way 853 controls are written is the concept of a base control and a control enhancement in which you have a base control that should be implemented. And then all of the control enhancements, for those of you following along at home, these would be all the control IDs that have a number in parentheses after them. A, a control ID AC2 is a base control, AC21 in parentheses, or AC24 in parentheses would be an enhancement to that base control. And in my reading of in my reading of the 853 catalog over the years, with Rev five, we're now at just north of 1,000 total controls and enhancements. But 70 percent of the catalog are enhancements, and the core of 853 has not necessarily expanded all that much. If you're if you're looking at it specifically, right? So when you look at 800-171, however. The concept of a control of a base control and a control enhancement is not in the document. It's it's another one of these uh, high level structures from fifty three that we have removed. In addition to all the ones that we talked about previously, is okay. the is the structure of base control and control enhancement also, uh, you know, something that's doomed to go to an appendix? No, that's pretty solid. The, the whole concept of the the control and the enhancements that kind of came out of a, a, an evolution over time where we, we started with a set of controls and then we discovered, well, we, we have other aspects of this control that needs to be articulated, but doesn't necessarily need to be implemented by everybody. In other words, we started to spread these enhancements out over the, the baseline. So as you went from the low to the moderate, you might add an enhancement or two. And it allowed us to get some spread over the requirements. So 
every control and every enhancement wouldn't be assigned to a single baseline. Mm-hmm. So that concept, I believe, is, is solid and is here to stay. Now, this also has some overlap into the 171 discussion because we started with the requirements from FIPS 200 as basic requirements, and then we had this notion of derived requirements, which came from the security controls. And again, that's part of probably another segment about what happened in 171 that we yeah. can talk about. But I think we'll probably jump into that problem. here in a minute. I was just sort of trying to paint this picture of, I tell us people, I was actually struggling with this before our conversation. Like, how are we going to orderly discuss 53 and FIPS and 171? And it's very, very difficult to separate them from each other because they are so closely related. I mean, they are by definition part, you know, one big happy family. And so it's very, very difficult to sort of describe, which is why I think we're probably teasing everybody by saying the 171, the 171. So uh, one of the last things that I wanted to ask you as a point of personal curiosity about 853 on this theme of characteristics in 853 that have come and gone and may go away and or come back is the uh, list at the bottom of every control of related controls. And this to me is the most interesting part of the catalog because the structure, the alphanumeric structure and sequencing of the catalog is designed to not imply sequence or priority or importance. We've even gotten rid of explicit indications of sequence and priority and importance. But as you look at the versions of 853 over the years, not only are there related controls listed, which creates a clustering effect of certain controls being at the center of, you know, clusters on a, on a sort of uh, map of nodes and edges, but that some of the controls have increased the number of related controls listed for them over the years. And I find that to be a, an interesting concept of indicating what's related to what, but also have those controls always been as related as they're indicated in rev five and our understanding of them has just gotten better or how, how has that dimension of 853 changed and how, how would, how do you view that part of the, of the catalog? Well, I think the related controls have proved to be very useful. It's, um, and again, another one of those things that you've noted that we try to provide additional information. The reason the number has grown, that's there's two reasons. One, I think you alluded to is your understanding about the relationships changes over time. And as you get better understanding of those potential interactions, then you note those uh, in, in the related control section. There's also been an increase in controls. And, and as part of that process, the more controls you bring in, we try to establish kind of this, the multi-dimensional aspects of the controls, and, and it can get kind of complicated. I have to say, it's not an exact science. So we have kind of a criteria that we use to determine if a controller is related or not. And that criteria has evolved over time as well. So I think the bottom line is we think it's useful for our, our customers to have those relationships. Sometimes they're, they're counterintuitive. You find a related control that you didn't think about, but there's some criteria that we went through that would allow us to, or justify, I should say, us to put that in the control uh, relation related control section. So I think that's going to stay, and yeah. I hope it's useful for our customers. It's extremely useful. Please do not put it in an appendix. Ms. Pilateri, <laughs> if you're listening, please do not put it in an appendix. Keep them listed with the control. But on we're that safe. note, we've <laughs> on that note, we've gone through sort of how we ended up with 853 and the context in which it's supposed to operate. 
how that sometimes helps, sometimes hurts people's perspective on working with the controls. We've talked about how 853 has evolved over time and how certain descriptions or characteristics or parts of the catalog have been taken out. And then as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, along comes this need for protecting controlled unclassified information, which ultimately leads to a derivative standard from 853. The case that I have always made is that without understanding that history of how we got to 53, it's very difficult to understand what 171 is A, supposed to represent, and B, what it could, what shape it could take on to be more helpful and useful and effective in the future. So much like we started at the beginning, how did this come about in terms of the CUI program, NIST's role in playing a part in the development of 171? There are multiple parts to implementing the CUI executive order. 800-171 is just one piece. How does this all work from your perspective? I think you have to go back to the original executive order, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was around 2010. Yes, sir. And then I think it was updated. Um, that executive order really was a fundamental change in how the government looked at information, categories and classes of information. This this goes back, this is primarily a NARA responsibility, National Archives and Records Administration. They were named the executive agent to, to kind of rebuild this whole program under controlled unclassed information. If you were you probably recall you've been doing this long enough to remember the days and it's still a little bit chaotic. When we had so many different types of information and the labeling and all the different things that would go with that, it kind of became a nightmare. And so when NARA was given this task, they brought all the federal agencies together and they said, we are going to redesign the whole information type business. And they ended up using this notion of category and subcategory. And it took quite a long time. I think it was a multi-year process to get... Yeah, it took them almost six years. Another yeah, another black box problem. Of, another black box problem. So they, Agencies have all these data markings and types yeah. and nobody really had visibility. Exactly. So they really had a two-part problem. One, to restructure the categories and subcategories, which have now been reduced just to categories again. And the second part of that was to what kind of protection safeguarding measures are you going to require to protect CUI. There was a CUI basic and then a CUI enhanced. And every one of those categories of CUI had to be backed up by some kind of a policy, a government-wide policy, regulation, or law that would justify that type of protection. Well, they did the first part of the process, which took a long time, did a really good job at that. In the second part, they said, okay, we're going to choose the moderate baseline as the level of protection that we're going to require. Now, it just so happens that um, one of the categories, privacy information, was also at that moderate level of protection. And, and the reason that level was chosen is kind of fairly simple. Low-impact information had um, limited adverse impact or effect on an organization if it was compromised. Uh, so that seemed to be obviously too low because if you compromise someone's PII, for example, it's not a limited effect. It can have a, a serious effect on individuals and even organizations. High impact was, in general, too high for the general types of categories that were being defined. Now, there is a, a situation where 
even though moderate, the moderate baseline is the kind of like the, the general level of protection for CUI. If you have CUI enhanced or there's some justification, you can add additional controls to, to bring that level of protection up. You can tailor. Yes, you can tailor. And, and I, the example I use is like the witness protection program information. Now that, that information, uh, you know, if, if, if someone's in the witness protection program, you, you want to make sure that information is really well protected. I think uh, that, that can have a, a severe catastrophic effect on the individual that's compromised. So as we uh, go along and describe 171, yeah. please, as many, as many examples as you have outside of the defense industry, I think are very helpful because so much of the discussion and probably the initial audience for this podcast have a defense industry focus and right. for various reasons why that occurred. Um, the, the, a lot of the questions around 800-171, I think a lot of the feedback that you guys receive on 171 come from that one industry when, sure. like you said, there are some very good reasons why 171 exists in the way that it does outside of the defense industry as part of the overall CUI program. Something that I see very commonly lost in the current conversation around 171 because over the years, we sort of lost the context of the CUI program as it has slowly finished uh, all three prongs of its rollout plan, if you will. So, yeah, so that's a good I think point. that the witness protection example is great. Yeah, that's a, it's a good point. I think when CMMC came along well after 171 was, was developed, it kind of took on, uh, it became the 800-pound grill in the room, and people started to associate everything in 171 only with CMMC. Boy, did they. That is an yeah. understatement. <laughs> So I believe, so you get, getting back to um, what drove the initial document development. So we partnered with NARA because even before 171 was in place, there was a need to have the, the federal information that was under that CUI category. If it's in a federal agency, it was already determined that that was going to be protected by the moderate baseline controls. That was agreed upon. That was in place well before 171 ever came onto the, onto the radar. Right. So the, we had the federal side uh, pretty well nailed down. Now, the question becomes, as we start to move into the, you know, after the, the initial NARA work was completed, we now see increasing numbers of, of, of agencies going out and outsourcing to organizations. We have the FedRAM program, which started in 2010, and that was, again, a recognition that a lot of the feds were going to be putting their federal information into a, a commercial cloud provider and again, the moderate baseline was selected as the, the basic level of protection for the cloud. Again, a reminder to folks that under the surface of FedRAMP, it's 853 tailored yes. accordingly to that that system and its needs. Some, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever heard this metaphor, sometimes the metaphor that I like to use is that 853 is a lot like Latin and uh, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it itself helps you understand these various other languages that pop up. FedRAMP or CMMC or something else, the core fundamentals in uh, the sort of sort of first principles in 853 mean that even though, you know, you don't, you're not fluent in that other language, you can understand what's going on very quickly because they're really just sort of variations of this original catalog. Well, and some people would argue that Latin is easier to learn than 853, and I'm not sure. I would <laughs> that, well, it's because you took all the details out. You got to put yeah, it back exactly. in. Yeah. Um, but so, so we, so we, everything was rolling along on the federal side, just, just fine. And then as we start to see more and more outsourcing external service providers coming into the mix, 
the basic idea is, and this is a fundamental concept that, that really is, was hardwired into the whole 171 idea. Information has value. If it has value on the federal side, that value does not change when it goes over the fence into a non-federal organization. The same thing, the requirements, the, the, the legislation for FISMA, it doesn't say in FISMA, hey, it's only your responsibility when, when you're in charge in your domain on your federal side. Anytime that information, that federal information moves, the responsibility of the agency goes with it no matter where that information ends up. So our right. problem now we have, is a twofold problem. The moderate baseline has embedded within it all the controls in the catalog that are in the moderate baseline. And those cover the three pillars of cybersecurity, confidentiality, integrity, availability. Now, the, so that really is overkill for what the executive order asked for. The executive order very narrowly focuses on confidentiality, unauthorized disclosure of CUI. Mm -hmm. So we were fine with the moderate baseline on the federal side. We're already doing that. In essence, if you were doing the moderate baseline, now CUI comes along, you're, you're covered pretty much. Right. Now the problem is on the non-federal side. What do we do there? Well, about 2014, we started having conversations with NARA, and that's when the DOD came on board as part of the partnership. They were having a different problem. For years, they were taking various iterations, uh, going back to the old IA controls back before they they, they partnered with NIST and we all agreed to work off of one catalog. That was in 2009. But since 2009 going forward, the DOD and the intelligence community were required to follow the NIST standards and guidelines for five different uh, publications. It was the 199, the 200, I believe, the, the 53, 53 Alpha, and 37. Uh, those publications became part of the joint task force. And in fact, we, whenever we updated the publications, NIST was actually in charge of the update, but we had the joint task force as advisors. So we would do a lot of the technical work um, with some support from the FFRDCs that we had on board. But the final document had to have a nod of approval from those two other partner communities, the Intel, the DNI, the ODNI, and the DOD, two, two very large and complex organizations. I think we had 16 Intel agencies under the ODNI at that time, probably still do. DOD, huge in its, uh, in its footprint. So DOD came on board. Now, they, for the past several years, they've been trying various iterations with the DIB. 50 controls went up to 75. I'm not sure the exact mm -hmm. numbers, but they were trying. It was like Goldilocks. You know, the, the porch is too hot. It's too cold. Right, it's right. right in the middle. And so they came on board as a partner and said, look, it, you know, as long as we're going to be, we're going to be creating this set of, we weren't sure if there were going to be controls or requirements at that point in time. There was a lot of sensitivity. We couldn't just throw the whole moderate baseline over the fence and say, okay, now you guys are going to do everything the feds do. That'd be wrong for two reasons. Because first of all, the executive order narrowly focused on confidentiality. So we, we knew that there would be an opportunity to tailor out all of those controls that were considered availability only type controls. There was also, when you're dealing with the non-federal entity now, the organizations and systems, anything in the catalog that was uniquely federal would could also be tailored out. So that provided our first two pillars of the tailoring that we put into place. The third pillar, which we, which came to be more controversial, there were a lot of supporters and a lot of detractors on this, was we said, and I know you've talked about this in some of your podcasts, we were under the assumption 
whether it was a good assumption or not, the historians will be able to comment on that. But we thought a lot of the controls that were routine that you would almost have to have in place if you were operating an information technology uh, you know, platforms in a modern organization doing business with the internet and all the connectivity we have today. And we said, okay, let's let's don't overkill this thing. Let's let's define these controls that are ones we would we want them to implement, but we're not going to tell them specifically to do it. You're kind of expected right. to come in with that. You, you hear that, everybody listening at home? It was an attempt to not be overly bureaucratic yeah. and prescriptive. Look, in other words, if you're going out through the high school football team or college or pro, you show up to training camp, the two-a-days, and you're out of shape, you're going to get cut. The, the coaches assume that you're going to be doing some training over the summer, you know, to sure. get down to, you know. Well, and I don't think the, that this is, this is, this is not, uh, you know, not, I'm not here to say that the assumption was right or wrong. I think that the, the, the reasoning behind the assumption makes perfect sense because from the perspective, by the time 800-171 is coming together, the data that needs to be protected is already flowing into the supply chain, another black box problem. The right. companies that have the data already have information systems, and uh, they've already signed on to agreeing to protect the data. And now you take a very heavily tailored, uh, very open-ended set of outcomes, and you say, please uh, give us assurance that you're meeting these when it comes to data confidentiality, and the whole thing blows up. Because as it turns out, although those are reasonable assumptions, uh, once you go below maybe T1 subcontractors in not just the defense supply chain, but seemingly most of the federal supply chain, uh, those, those precursors are not in place. And so from my perspective, this put 171 and NIST and all the authors and NARA as the executive agent into a, into a real corner. Because if it turns out that the majority of the tailoring, which makes the document small, the NFO control assumptions about what already exists are not valid, then the document is going to expand tremendously because you have to retreat back to the rest of the moderate baseline that's, you know, not the federal specific stuff, not the non-confidentiality related stuff, but you're still talking about many more controls and details that were tailored out. And that had always been the question in my mind leading up to this initial public draft of 171 Rev 3 is, um, are we going to maintain the set of assumptions or are we going to use what we've learned in the rollout in the the Petri dish of the, of the dib supply chain to change the design of the document. And well, I found that to be, you know, a, a very interesting question. And now we sort of have the answer. I believe I would love to know what was the rationale that went into leading up to the initial public draft in terms of assessing those assumptions. Well, there were several considerations. It wasn't just that assumption. That was one of the things that we, you know, we observed over time, um, we put a document out, how's it received, how's it implemented. And, you know, part of being a good scientist or engineer is you learn from the experiences that you're seeing. The other problem that we uh, came across is that the original methodology or the design decisions we took on 171, we wanted to make it fairly simple in the language that we were using. And that's why we started with the 
the language in FIPS 200, those 17 basic requirements. And we ended yeah. up making those the basic requirements. And then we used the, the security controls in 53 as, as additional, kind of like the same thing we did with the, uh, the, the families of controls. Mm-hmm. Um, and the original requirements in, in FIPS 200, we built those controls out based upon the general requirement. Now, what happened was those basic requirements in FIPS 200 cover the waterfront as far as the generality goes. Right. When you start to get down to the individual controls, your, your eye is focused on, in, let's say, for example, AC, uh, the, the access control requirement in FIPS 200. Uh, 53 was designed... Uh, the AC family was designed to select a set of controls that would right. allow you to demonstrate compliance to that high Correct. level requirement. Yeah, doesn't um, doesn't the process of using FIPS 200 language together with 853 language create a sort of loop where you're supposed yeah, yes. to be selecting controls to meet the requirement, but now they're in it's, the same document together? Yes, that's the problem. It's not quite a so the simplicity was great. But there was there was some inherent redundancy that came in because a lot of those con- derived controls, aspects of those were being stated in the basic requirements. Right, so right. one of the big design decisions that we made in, in the Rev3 is to eliminate the distinction between basic and derived requirements. And this decision was made in, in, in the same line as our commitment now, after looking at this document for about seven or eight years. One of the comments we got in the public comments was NIST has a lot of frameworks and a lot of different things going on. You got the 53, you got the RMF, you got the CSF, you got the privacy framework, you got 171, the 171 alpha. Why don't you try to simplify some of these framework constructs and collapse them back into some of the fundamentals, the sources where they were derived? I think that was the comment that you've been making over time. So we made a decision that not in Rev3 completely, but we were going to start to move the language in 171 closer to its source language in 853. It can't be done all at one time because, again, we want to be sensitive to this document has a huge footprint in the DIB and other organizations, not just in this country, but worldwide. A lot of the defense industrial base have partnerships in other countries, and those countries use 8171. So we want to start this well, process. And to that, to that point. You know, 853, I see this a lot um, uh, where people say, well, there's a thousand controls in 853. I can't possibly implement all of them. And that's when you say, well, there's no such thing as implementing all of 853. You're supposed to implement a subset because it exists in a context of an overall framework of how you're supposed to use it. And for most people, if they haven't worked in a federal environment or a defense program or, you know, weapon system, ATO type process, they would have never seen an initial baseline, a tailored baseline. For a lot of people, 800 is their first experience going from the entire catalog of 53 to an initial baseline of selected uh, and you know almost finished tailored controls. So I, I agree with you that 171 is of tremendous importance because for, for most people who are looking at it, it's the first time they've actually seen that process, the output of that process that 53 is supposed to work inside of. So if you, if you take back the, um, the strategy that NIST is rolling out of eventually moving the 800 requirements into a full CUI overlay and overlay is just right. taking the specific controls in the moderate baseline and tailoring those controls to you end up with 
basically what you had in 171 to start with. Now, that's the long-term goal. That's also what drove the um, starting of the ODPs, the Organization Defined Parameters. Now, here's the, what drove that decision. In looking at those requirements in 171, they were a lot simpler in the way they were stated. There was also a tremendous amount of ambiguity in those requirements. Now, people argued on both sides of that. Some people love the ambiguity because it allows them free reign in how they craft solutions. Other people didn't like it because they said, you know, this is open-ended. I really don't know where you're going with this. I need more information. Again, it's a continuum of zero to 100. I felt we were too far back on the ambiguity side. Now, what what is that? What's the side effect of having ambiguous requirements? It, it really, it has two negative effects. One, your requirement is not clearly stated. So you're not establishing an expectation of what you really want. And that's a problem for the federal government on one side. It's a problem for the contractors on the other. Nobody knows what the expectation is. I've had a lot of people tell me, you know, it's not as much as what the requirements are asking for. Just be clear. I want to know what I have to do. What, what is the, where, where's the bar? And let me, let me try to reach that bar. That was the first big issue. The second issue is with ambiguity on the assessment side, it allows the assessors to go through and do interpretations. And if you're, if you're trying to assess a requirement that's very ambiguous, some assessors are going to go wild and crazy and they're going to oh, yeah. go through a deep dive. Other ones are going to say, you know, the requirement says this and we're going to, whatever you have is reasonable. So I don't think it's a good idea ever to have ambiguity on the part of the requirements or the assessment procedure. But then you run into, but then you run into the flexibility time. and over, yeah. overly prescriptive problem, right? And, and that's a very delicate balance. Well, and that's the reason why we run in the ODPs because again, we could make the requirements very prescriptive, but the ODPs, again, allow that level of flexibility. Now, the, the you brought up the term earlier about organization-defined parameter. Who the heck is the organization? Who is this mysterious organization? Well, it's really no mystery. We, we made a decision a long time ago that organization is going to be context-dependent. Now, in the case of the 171 Rev. 3, the organization, the federal government, could be defined as the organization that defines the parameter. In fact, since this is a federal set of requirements going over the fence to the private sector, you want the feds to really have the first right of refusal. If they have something, and again, you're dealing with a set of requirements, even within DOD, these are going under different contracts. Some are critical, some are not so critical. You might want to have a greater specificity in those ODPs and certain types of contracts or you may decide that, hey, I'm not going to specify any parameter. I'll just let the non-feds take charge of that. I don't really right. care. It's a no-op from my perspective. Right. But how the, how the individual ODPs get instantiated is purely up. It's a policy-related question right. that's in the hands of the federal agency. And, that's this, and, that. and that makes perfect sense to me because if you have a initial baseline of security controls and you're on contract to build a weapon system for the DOD, they will specify what those values should be for the ones which they care about because it's their system. They are the organization. Exactly. If they pass on specifying some of those requirements and leave it up to your discretion, then you are the organization. In that case, it changes. Now, within the context of the CUI program, the ultimate organization, in my view, would be NARA as the CUI executive agent. They would be the ones to say it first. 
these are the minimum parameters for protecting CUI that need to be defined. And from there, they certainly probably won't define all 117 some odd ODPs in Rev3. They may define some of them, at which point individual agencies might say that uh, there are other parameters that they care about. For example, you wouldn't hard code in Department of State requirements for export controlled information into the initial baseline of 800-171-REV3 because people who aren't Department of State contractors don't have those requirements. That's why the tailoring process that we went into detail with from 853 is first influenced by external requirements first. So the organization changes. However, for a lot of people, like we said, 171 is their first experience with this context of tailoring. And so I had a very unscientific LinkedIn poll, one of my favorite hobbies. And I said, who do you think the organization is? And many, many people voted the contractor gets to determine what these variables should be. So one of my comments to NIST will be, um, I think that a lot of the context around what tailoring is and how those are determined exists in 853, was not carried over into 800-171. And because you have a very low uh, level of understanding in private industry about how 53 works in the federal context, you have to you have to be doubly careful to make sure to explain how that is supposed to work within the context, which may cause the front end of 800-171 to be longer and more, you know, explanatory than it is currently because people are not familiar with tailoring or ODPs or anything like that, even though that's the way 853 has existed all along. Yeah. I'd be surprised. Um, I don't think NARA, I could be wrong, but my, my sense right now is that they will, they would not weigh in, um, with those parameters because they've lived with the moderate baseline on the federal side for a long time. And, and agencies have really individually set those parameters within each of the agencies. So NARA typically hasn't gotten involved in that. I think what you could find is that individual agencies may decide that they want to instantiate certain parameters across the board for all their contracts. DOD may be one of those, or they may decide that, hey, we're just going to let it roll unless we have a specific contract where this parameter at a certain value becomes critical to our protection scheme. And if that happens, that, you know, now how all that works in the contract world, I'm not sure how that's going to play out. I don't think anybody really, I mean, the contract world is crazy, but philosophically from a very high level, my understanding of the 800 baseline is that it is supposed to represent the minimum baseline because when NARA went through and looked at all these various authorities across all the agencies, the project that took them six years and ultimately resulted in the CUI registry, they found that a lot of these laws and regulations and policies said protect XYZ form of data, but it never defined what the word protect meant. Some agencies had very specific things, ITAR, DOD, CTI, things like that. But generally the, the core of protect data, the minimum level of protection so that CUI could be shared in the spirit of the executive order was never defined, which if the ODPs are left up to the discretion of each agency, you would never have one minimum baseline. So does leaving the ODPs undefined actually not get us to the goal of the CUI program? Doesn't that just get us back to where we were prior to trying to snap a minimum baseline? 
That's a good question. I think the answer, um, you could be correct on that as far as when you have the ability to be flexible, you have the ability to be flexible. And that means multiple solutions can come out of that. And, and that with the ODPs is a good example. Now, in my view, if it's important enough for a certain parameter to be set at a certain value, and that is the type of thing you want to propagate across the entire federal government, then that is certainly not NIST responsible. We don't do that. Right. But yeah, I'm not saying that NIST be, needs to define it. It because... could be an OM, whoever's an executive agent or whoever has the statutory or policy authority to do that, and they wanted to do it. They would. They so, for example, if OMB wanted every federal agency to back up their systems every week, they could come out with an OMB policy that says that, and then that would instantiate by level of indirection every control that had that as a variable. You you point back to the policy and say per OMB policy A one whatever the number was OMB M nineteen whatever. Mm-hmm. That policy would be, that variable would be um, defined in that policy, and you'd have to instantiate that. But NIST is not charged with doing that. Now, if DOD, if, if OMB doesn't do it at that level, and there's no law or government-wide policy or any kind of directive that would mandate that, DOD on its own could decide to play that role for all of their contracts. Right. Um, but Which they makes may not perfect sense. Them. I mean, it makes perfect sense within the context, as long as the assumption is true that it only matters within a DOD or a state or a commerce or an interior context. But the whole idea of the CUI program was we need a minimum baseline because everyone's doing their own thing. We need to standardize the markings. We need to standardize minimum protections. If you ask for something oh. above that, you're good to go. CUI specified, it's totally fine. I just think that, like I said, not NIST's job, but the, the my biggest takeaway from the initial draft of 171 Rev 3 is that it, it really is correct by going back to its roots in 853, but that also opens policy questions that have been languishing and have not been answered because ODPs have been a characteristic of 800-171 all along, even though it wasn't apparent on the surface based on the formatting. And they were never defined. Now those ODPs are explicit, and they're still not defined. So, you know, if, like I said, if you, if you took out the assignment statement and just used the actual wording, I went back and looked at some of the one seventy one requirements, and and we actually that kind of language was in there, but it didn't have an assignment statement that said right. organization define whatever. So in some sense, if the ODPs were totally rejected and you just went back to putting those same words in without the ability to instantiate the variable there, you then bring back that ambiguity, the uncertainty, the um, kind of like whatever ends up being the organization's choice by their definition. Uh, that, that's an approach, but it, yeah. it, it leaves us with the same problems we had before. So I think it comes down to something very simple. It's the expectation that are levied on the people who are responding to requirements. Requirements need to be clear, concise, well-formed, and that sets a level of expectation that we can all sign up to. Now, we can argue over whether the requirement is necessary or not, and we could argue about the number of requirements. I know people, the first thing they do, in fact... First thing I do, you count them up. (laughs) Count them up, and we've had people already tell us, that hey, you're one off in your count. It looks like 111 versus 110, but there's a reason why that anomaly exists, and you probably already found that. I think you did find the place where one of three, us uh, three, the, the ID. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. 
But I would urge people, and I know saying don't count the controls, don't count the requirements, but people look at that in terms of dollars and cents. It's Every a time I, it's a surrogate. Yeah, for, yeah. It's a, exactly. Now, another thing we did this time as part of our design, and we moved some of those, we got rid of basic and derived requirements. And a lot of times, when you go back and look retrospectively at a set of requirements or controls, you find natural groupings that should have been put closer together in the same context. And you'll see a lot of the things that were withdrawn. And like you met, you said in one of your podcasts, very few dis- times does anything ever really go away at NIST. It just gets yeah, kind it's of... Yeah, uh, it's the law of conservation of NIST controls where... <laughs> yes. Well, in this case, there there were legitimate things that we, we, we do the withdrawal more for a tracking over time, a historical context, so people can see where things went and why. Right. And so a lot of the vast majority of those things that were withdrawn, we had a few that actually went away, just as yep. you pointed out. But the vast majority went back in to be incorporated into a multi-part requirement. Now, it's the same basic set of requirements that were there before, but they're grouped. And the grouping is important because it provides a natural context for things that look alike yeah. and they're very similar. So I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And and that was sort of the reason why I asked the question of, I agree with the grouping. I agree with the incorporation. I don't agree with the term withdrawn, but I understand why the moves were made. Yeah. When we don't have an indication of base control, control enhancement, those groupings are not as apparent. And I would say that uh, I would, I personally agree with removing basic versus derived requirements because most people are not familiar with FIPS 200 and the relationship to 53. But I do think that the structure maybe in our slow return back to 171 as a explicit 853 overlay, the idea of a base control and a control enhancement is very helpful because like we talked about earlier, what people are really looking for a lot of the times is some sort of clue for the PMs of where to start and control enhancements necessarily should come after a base control. And so we can use a structure in 853 that we don't have to invent anything new it doesn't necessarily add any unnecessary specificity, but if we were to indicate in the document that these are base controls, these are control enhancements, start with the base controls. I think that people would find that very helpful, even though we're not really changing anything. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes perfect. And this is one of the reasons why when we released Rev3, we provided a ton of supplemental information on the website. A lot of the stuff used to be in the document. We're kind of evolving more to a web-based presence. So the controls are on the web now. The uh, assessment procedures are on the web. You'll notice that we created a draft CUI overlay. And this gets to your point. We did a painful mapping of every one of those requirements in Rev3, all the subparts. We've mapped to a specific control or control enhancement. So you can go into our website now, look at that CUI overlay. And you can start to look into the future a little bit about what an overlay looks like. It's really nothing more than the the controls in the moderate baseline that have been tailored with the exact same tailoring criteria, but you end up with language that is consistent with what's in 853. Now, some people are not going to like that. Other people are going to love it. The idea is that when you're dealing with a defense industrial base or any large group in the private sector, the feds are used to using 53. And in fact, a lot of people in the private sector, not just in the United States, but worldwide, use 853 as their base set of controls. Did you say that, I think you told me one time that 853 is the most downloaded NIST document of all time? Yeah, it was, uh, we, 
I think Rev4, we didn't count the Rev5 yet, but I believe Rev4 over its history had over 20 million uh, hits on the web. And a lot of those ended up in downloads. Some were just people looking at the document. But 20 million is a big number in any business. Um, and I do have to say, we, I broke one record um, on our social media, uh, on my personal LinkedIn account. When we announced 171 Rev3, that broke every record for every publication that I've ever announced on my personal LinkedIn account. Yeah. Uh, we had over 115,000 views and it's still growing every day because every yeah. time somebody reshares that post, it opens up a whole other network of people. Right, right. Yeah, the and black box of social media uh, virality. Yeah, it, so Exactly. It's, well, it's not surprising because the DIB, um, this document has a huge footprint and it affects so many organizations. And we, we're, we're very sensitive to the kinds of changes and how those things affect downstream. You know, not just when they hit the federal agency, but it propagates through maybe 10 levels of the supply chain. Sure. Down to the well, because it follows it follows the information, and that that leads me to a question yeah. about those ODPs and the formatting. Because I think the formatting of the controls with ODPs is probably what people will notice first as they just sort of flip through sure. the document. You know, outside of the question of eight hundred one seventy one may or may not be designed to represent a minimum baseline federal wide, um, the idea that ODPs would be defined first by the federal government, the data owner, and down and so on and so forth, down to the contractor's discretion probably last. Who's sometimes I'm sure you've heard this before. Uh, a lot of people will say 8171 is not risk based because you've snapped a baseline of selected controls. And I always tell them it is risk based but it doesn't necessarily reflect your risk because it exists as the output of a process. Is yeah. that the proper way to think about it? In my mind, right. 171 reflects the risk of the federal government as a data owner, not right. a, a, a yes. private business it, it, first. It's exactly right. I mean, look, everybody wants to think that they, when, when you're using tailoring, if you're in a federal agency and you're tailoring controls, you're bringing in controls that you need for additional protection. Maybe you're eliminating ones that are not uh, suited to your technology or your mission. Ultimately, you take the you take responsibility. You manage your own risk. Now, in this case, when you're talking about CUI, which is federal information, anywhere from privacy information to design documentation or designs for you know new weapon systems and things like that, that information the federal government cares a lot about. That so, the, like you said, exactly right. The risk based decision making is not just on the part of the contractor who's taking that set of requirements, maybe they do get a chance to instantiate 75% of those ODPs. Maybe the DOD does 25%. Who knows where that's going to end up? But the fact is, that's a shared risk across the entire ecosystem. And in fact, uh, when you look at it, I even look at it larger than that. When you're looking at the DOD and some of these contractors who are working on sensitive designs for the next generation whatever, that has huge implications for national security and our economic security as well, because even if it's not DOD we're talking about, if somebody's coming up with a, a creative new design in, in private industry, and believe me, those attacks are going on both in the public sector and the private sector. The adversaries want that information. Doing research and development is one of the most expensive parts of the development process. If an organization can steal those, if an adversary can steal that information 
and then take that design and actually build those systems. I mean, it's not going to be exactly the same. There's a lot of internals that are never going to come out the same. But that gives the adversary an advantage. And that advantage is not just in the world of the DOD and weapon system. That's in any technology where the United States is on the leading edge. And that's an economic security issue. And so today with, and this is kind of the broad statement that kind of brings everything together of 171. 171 is not just about the CMMC and the DIV. Right. It's about the United States protecting our critical assets, which are tied both to, a, there's a national security interest there. There's a, there's a huge economic security interest there. And in fact, you can't divorce economic security and national security because if all of your information is pilfered and your economy goes into the tank, you can't afford to build cutting-edge weapon systems, and that impacts the United States of America's ability to defend itself right. going forward. Right. Absolutely. And so we're well, done. We're done. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so, the, so one of the common points that I hear brought up a lot is if this data is so important that it is relevant to national security, and that's why it should be defended, why isn't it classified? Personally, There's when I hear that, I think back to my experience at various acquisition commands, my time in the military, and I go, a lot of it probably should be, but it's very expensive to do that. And it's even more cumbersome and complicated and expensive than what we're trying to do with the CUI program within its narrow aperture of just data confidentiality. So you're probably right. A lot of the data that's out there probably should be classified at a low level. That doesn't necessarily fix the problem. Well, there's two things here. If you look into CNSS instruction 1253, where they use the 853 controls in their baselines, there, there is a lot of tailoring that goes on in that environment. But the vast majority of controls, even on the classified side, are the fundamental blocking and tackling controls that you find in any system. Now, what, what makes this problem especially difficult goes back to the basic idea. Yes, you could argue that a, a new design or a new type of technology it never starts out being classified because it's in a life cycle evolution. It's, it may start out with a couple of people in the garage, you know, with a pencil and paper, and they start to work on a new design. And that new design over time starts to take shape and, and gets a little bit more. It's kind of like looking at an image of pixels where the number of pixels is very few and the image is blurry. And as you add more pixels, it sharpens up until you see what you're really looking at. This is the same thing that happens with with these R&D efforts. They start out with ideas, they build over time, and at some point, when that design or that R&D, that information, that design documentation is is to the point where it is going to be in, actively involved in the weapon system and it now needs to be classified, those decisions will be taken at the appropriate time. But until that time, there's a lot of stuff out there, even if we're never going into a weapon system, that's extremely valuable right. to an adversary, especially one that's competing with us on the economic front. Right. And so I think the bottom line is we're not dealing in a world of, like we started out, kinetic warfare. Now we're in a, the world of kinetic warfare, cyber warfare, and a hybrid mix of the two. And a lot of the, a lot of the battles in the cyber war are, are going to be fought way to the left of boom. Sure. This is where they're coming at, you know, if it's the it famously in the, in the words of the, of a, one of the SecNav cyber readiness reports that I read, it's the war before the war is how they describe exactly. it. In fact, if the adversary does their job properly, they'll never have to fight another kinetic war because they can disable the United States from the inside out. 
And that would be stealing technology, implementing technology so they can build those systems less expensively than we can, uh, cheaper, faster. Yep. Um, and who knows where, where that leads? It, it provides a level of potential intimidation that no country can hold itself up to uh, for the long term. That's why when we talk about, you know, things always devolve in 171 to counting controls and counting sure. requirements. And, and, you know, I understand that, especially if you're a small business. I mean, I look at uh, this. This happened to me a lot when we were writing Rev3. I look at those requirements and I, I put myself, I'm sitting in a, at a workstation in Florida and I'm looking at my work environment and I'm looking at a small business. And I say, I understand exactly what they're talking about. It's intimidating and it's difficult for a small business. What do you define that as? I don't know if it's a hundred to 500 or, you know, five to a hundred people, however that is. It's, it's a number of people that, that it's in a small business. Your resources are, are, are fewer. Um, your, maybe your expertise on site, you don't have the types of cybersecurity people you need to do that, but that's a separable issue. The value of that information is never going to change because it transcends that magical barrier from the federal side to the private sector. Right. What we have to be able to do, and I know DOD has been wrestling this for a long time, and that's going to be something they're going to have to come up with a solution for, is how does a small or moderate medium-sized business protect that information to the degree that can satisfy the requirement. Whatever those requirements end up in Rev3, they're going to be locked in at some point. On that note about this tension between the the minimum requirements, whether the ODPs are defined or not, the minimum requirements don't change as a result of the change in the size of the organization dealing with the information. This might be... um, getting out in front of our skis here in terms of NIST's role and responsibility. But there's clearly, clearly, we have to acknowledge the fact that the majority of the people and organizations who are dealing with the data are small organizations. And so, although it is true that the requirements are still valid and the impact of the compromised data is the same across the size of the organization, it it is also a necessary characteristic that Almost all the organizations are below that line. So in my mind, if we were to put that, the size of the organization as the priority, we would eventually end up with a standard with no controls in it. There would be no requirements in it because that's the only thing that everyone would be able to to do. And that's clearly not the correct answer. Is, Is there a responsibility on the NIST end with 171 to consider the fact that although it is true that the the data is just as valuable, it does exist almost by definition in organizations that are under-resourced, below the line, incapable of dealing with some of these assumptions. I mean, this seems like a very, very difficult thing to balance. Yeah, it is very difficult. And I I do appreciate uh, all of those concerns. In fact, when you're sitting, I was saying before, at a workstation, or your laptop and your your kind of your own small business creating a document, you can see that as you're going through those requirements, they are very substantial. I think the problem that we have at NIST, and this is where we have to kind of separate ourselves from the small and medium-sized business problem. We're not saying it's not a problem, but our first responsibility at NIST is to define a set of requirements and protections and safeguards that can do the job. And, and that's, that's really our fundamental task. 
if you were to go the other direction and gear your requirements to the size of the organization and the resources, as you just said, you would have to scale back those requirements quite a bit. And then you're left with a situation where you're underprotected and you're going to be inviting situations where a cyber attack will be launched and most likely be successful. So it's not something that um, it's it's important, but it's not going to be a question that missed and solved because our first responsibility is to make sure the requirements are technically correct, implementable, and they're sufficient to do the job. They have enough throw weight to do what they're supposed to do. How that that the problem will be solved? There'll be I'm not sure what the solution will be, uh, but. Again, going back to that fundamental principle, the information has a certain value and it doesn't change when it goes over the fence to the yeah. non-federal side, no matter if it's a Fortune 500 or one of the big five, big right. six defense contractors, or whether it's a small mom and pop shop downstream in the supply chain. Well, on that, on that note, right, it seems like I think everybody understands that conundrum. But my understanding of how 171 has been tailored in the past, obviously not nearly to the degree to which it has been, the tailoring has expanded the document in the initial draft of Rev3. But in the original version of 800-171, SSPs were not a requirement. They were not tailored in as a CUI requirement, probably because the assumption was you built a system, you probably had a plan. That turned out to not be true. I'm basing this off of yeah. Statements from the 2018 CUI Industry Day that NIST held, where yourself, uh, Victoria, folks from DOD, folks from NARA were all speaking on this problem. Right. And according to uh, Gus Gasani from IDA, right, Small World, um, he said that the situation was people said, well, we don't know how to document any of this. Like, we don't know how to write any of this. And they said, well, the way that we would do that in a federal context is with SSPs. So, the, the closest best thing that we could do to help you understand how this would work for us is with SSPs, even though originally people didn't have to do SSPs because the yeah. assumption was you already knew what you were doing. It Was that the rationale behind tailoring SSPs? And did that same rationale play into tailoring the other NFO assumptions? Because in well, my exactly. breakdown of the controls, um, the biggest amount of change from Rev 2 to the Rev 3 initial uh, draft baseline is reversing those NFO assumptions. Yeah, that's correct. It, the SSP was the glaring example. Like we added the SSP in one of our earlier revisions. That's when it came back in first. But you're exactly right. On retrospect, looking back at all those NFOs, we're, we heard from many, many different sources that they just were, they were not meeting our initial assumption. And so um, they came back in in Rev3 in large measure. Not all of them were still, you know, there's still some that were, you know, going back to that assumption. Right. And um, we don't want to do, we don't want to overkill it, but the ones that we brought back, we brought back for a reason. Those are, they're, they're pretty important. We assumed they were going to be done, especially the Dash 1 controls. That was one of the easy ones that we thought we could tater out because, again, Going back to what you stated earlier, um, if you're doing any kind of security program, you're doing any kind of controls, you, you, it would be hard to imagine not having a policy or a procedure that would back up the intent of why that control was being put in to begin with. The policy states the high level organization's commitment 
The procedures tell you how to do it, and then the controls follow from there. Uh, as it turns out, <laughs> that again didn't happen across the board. Um, and we, we understood it wasn't going to happen in every case, but we were actually surprised it didn't happen in so many cases. Right. And there, there's a good argument to be made that the dash one controls are pretty important. Now we tried to consolidate a little bit by putting right. it back into one requirement and just having a multi-part policy or procedure as, as the organization would define that right. gives them more control over that. Right. You know, I've heard this also from folks who were at NARA who participated, you know, I've heard this basically from everybody that I've been able to speak to who was involved in the development, that it was a surprise that so much of once you get to a certain level in the supply chain, a certain level size of an organization, this concept of how a security program runs is really inverted where, you know, the technical folks, the IT person is judge, jury, and executioner in terms of how everything is, yeah. is run. And the concept of management, you know, saying via policy that this is what we would like to have happen, select and implement controls to enforce this policy. Uh, just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. There's, there's, there's no one driving the ship. Does obviously it changed the tailoring in 171, but does this reality sort of influence higher level thought from NIST about what the standard could or ought to look like if you're placing it in this environment where below the waterline, there was no engineering, for instance, one of the assumptions NFO controls that's still in the initial public draft is security architectures. And what you find very quickly when you go to most organizations is there was never a single thought placed into secure architecture. If that remains an assumption, how much back to the sequencing idea of an assessment uh, case that NIST used to do back in the day, just like the policy position, if the architecture, if the, below the waterline is fouled up, how how much above the waterline can we can we do? Well, look at these are these are all difficult questions. You you want to have enough controls in, in the in the mix and requirements to be able to do the job and not have overkill. The architecture one is a very good point. Uh, I, I pointed out that after the 2015 breach, one of the first things the DHS did was to go back and. Ask every agency, what do you, what systems are you connected to? And are all those necessary? That's an architectural consideration. What do I have in the mix of all of my components internally? What am I connected to outside the organization? It's all about architecture. I, I kind of believe that's, that's fundamental. Now, one of the good news stories coming out of all of this, which happened way after the 171 was the, the move toward zero trust concepts, zero trust architectures. You're now seeing and a lot of push from the federal government, private sector, everybody seems to be on board with the zero trust idea. Now, I don't know. We see a lot of these things like cloud computing. We had the mobile device explosion. Um, now we're seeing with AI. There's a lot of hype that goes with a lot of these things, but fundamentally zero trust is a, it's a very solid set of concepts. They, they go back a long way, almost 40 years to the original sure. design of trusted systems. So I think we're starting to see more of the focus below the waterline. And you can see with the push for zero trust, you're, we're trying to collapse that soft, squishy outer perimeter that we tried to defend for the past four decades. And we're bringing that perimeter in tighter and tighter to individual resources. We're still applying 
the same controls, access controls, authentication. That's exactly what I was going to say is that, you know, sometimes I'll hear people say that they're in conflict. I don't believe they are. I know Victoria Pilateri, when I asked her this last year, said that they are not. To me, it seems odd because zero trust seems to be a thing that people will agree with as a high level concept. But when you dig into zero trust, it seems to be a bigger emphasis on the things that people are already struggling with. Identity management, access control, configurations, lease privilege. The, the architecture is directly influenced by those things rather than just sort of also in the same conversation. Yeah. And so if people are struggling with the fundamentals in 53, 171, the move to zero trust will exacerbate those struggles. It, it may or may not. Now, one of the things sometimes when you take a different approach like this with, with zero trust, I would argue, and I agree with, with Vicky, that the controls are still the controls. It's where and how they're implemented that may change. Right. I, yeah, I agree. The whole, the whole notion of why this is such an important discussion about architecture is that when you look at cyber attacks, you, you know, previously we have kind of like a single boundary. Of the, there's like a single line of defense. And the concept in cybersecurity and information security, computer security going back 40 years, defense in depth has always been the way that we ultimately want to protect our systems. The idea is that you don't want to have a single point of failure. And with a zero trust concept, and I, I would argue that a lot of these principles go back a long way with our uh, 800-160 talks about all those design concepts that go back a long way. Collapsing the perimeter is like having a lock on your front door. If the bad guy compromises that lock on your front door and comes in your house, rips through all your valuables in every room, that's not a good thing. Well, that's kind of like what our systems look like. If you could have a lock on the front door as your first line of defense, but then every room in your house had a vault or a safe, now the adversary goes through that right. first line. They come to the bedroom. There's a safe in there. What you're doing is you're increasing the work factor. Those identif- those access control mechanisms, INA authorization, and all of that identity management being collapsed to smaller resources, you are increasing the work factor on the adversary resource by resource by resource all the way through. That's an architectural construct right. that kind of builds on the basic concepts that we've known right. about for a long time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree with you. I agree with Vicky that these are not intention, uh, in tension with each other. And that, in fact, they are necessarily not intention because there is an assumption of an architecture. And that could be a zero trust architecture prior to getting to these outcomes that you're looking for. What, one question that I had about the nature of the initial public draft, and this is really to queue up the idea of what would make helpful public comments, is the concept of how it was tailored in the sense that in 53, in my experience, working with 53 and studying 53, the concept of tailoring a control in or out of the baseline, because there are many controls that are not in the baselines that are in the catalog, is as low level as the tailoring gets in terms of removing things. So for instance, you have the moderate baseline, you tailor some controls out, you tailor some controls in, you get an initial baseline. Then you have all of these organizationally defined parameters that need to be defined. You define them, they become part of the control. That is your finished tailored baseline and or overlay, depending on who's writing it. Right. Here with the tailoring of the moderate baseline to create 800-171, we didn't just tailor controls out of the baseline. We then went a step further and tailored parts of the controls out of the controls themselves. Right. And to my understanding, that's never been done before 
That's not really something that 853 describes. Is that something that will be reversed in our trend back towards the 171 overlay? Because for instance, the flaw remediation control in 171 Rev 3 initial public draft leaves off the mention of working this into your configuration management program, which is right. included in the 853 version. And tailoring that last piece out just seems puzzling to me. So the answer to your question is there, there really was never any prohibition about organizations tailoring at the, I would call it the sub-control level. In other words, there's a, there's kind of a, an assumption that people think that when you tailor, you either take the whole control in or you take it all out or you, you, know, you put a whole you shake it all in. about. There's nothing in our NIST guidance that ever stated that you couldn't carve out pieces of controls. In fact, when we made the decision to try to move back to the CUI overlay using 53, it was going to be essential. If you look on our website of the draft CUI overlay, you are going to see that tailoring process actually carves up specific controls. Now, to your specific point on flower mediation, that particular sub-element of the control, making it part of your configuration management plan, you could make an argument that, that was tailored out under the auspices of NCO. It's not really directly related to confidentiality. The same argument that you could make on taking a whole control out, like in right. the CP family, I could make the argument that we carve up controls with that saying you're basically, it's like a recursion. You're, you're basically sure. catering at the next level down. Now, well, the, the it, counterpoint to that is without including the mention of related controls in 171, right. it's very difficult because there are configuration management requirements in the document, but the configuration management language in other requirements is removed. So it's very difficult yeah. to see how interrelated those controls might be. So this, this is one of those times, this is one of those times when you try to err on the side of not overloading the requirements just sure. because they're part of the requirement. And that's the reason why you don't see that particular piece in there. It's not that it's not useful. There's a lot of stuff in the modern baseline that's very useful. In fact, I would argue it's needed, but it's just not in the original executive order scope of what they wanted to try to achieve. Right. Let, me, let me just make one other point. No, of course, of course, please. There, there's, there was a lot of talk about when we tailored uh, for confidentiality only that we eliminated integrity and availability. And a lot of, this is a very subtle point. And I've had this discussion with a lot of people in the DOD over the years. Um, in their CNSS instruction 1253, when they do tailoring, they actually go down by C, I, and A and one of the things I, I, I argued, and this is kind of a, this gets down to kind of the theory or the mechanism level. There's a very close relationship, believe it or not, between confidentiality and integrity. When you get down to the mechanism level, for example, when you're doing access control, you're trying to keep people out of the system that shouldn't be there. If they get into the system, they shouldn't be there. What can they do? Well, they can look at what you've got. That would be unauthorized disclosure. They can also modify what you have there. That would be unauthorized modification. So I would say that 95% of our controls that deal with confidentiality, they also deal with integrity. You might find a handful, and you, and you could probably find these. You know that this is true. There's a handful of controls that were integrity only that we carved sure. out of the one well, and that's why, And that's why the part of removing pieces of the controls was so strange to me because they are so... We, we we didn't include assurance versus functionality because it's right. a spectrum and 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 we don't 
have the sub elements of controls saying this is confidentiality, this is integrity, this is availability, but we tailored it like it were listed that way. And that always felt like a, uh, a, a game of whack-a-mole. Now, the bigger policy question here though is, is all of this strange confidentiality focused tailoring because of the constraint listed in the executive order that says data confidentiality? If the executive order were revised to remove the word confidentiality, would it well, absol yeah. absolve us of this problem and we'd just be back to the moderate well, baseline? If, if they took out the confidentiality restriction on the, on the executive order, the first thing you would notice is that availability controls would come back in. Now, here's the other point that people don't, a lot, a lot of people don't understand. When you're tailoring controls, if you're, if you can lower your availability, let's say you have, you want to lower your availability controls. You have a high impact system. You want to tailor out the, the, but it's, 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 it's high impact for reasons of confidentiality and integrity, not for availability. You can safely downgrade your availability controls and not affect the confidentiality and integrity controls in the system, but you can't do it the other way. A lot of people tried to reduce their confidentiality controls saying, hey, we don't care who, who sees the stuff. But when they do that, you lose a lot of the controls that are tethered, dependent for right. integrity. If you lower right. your integrity and your confidentiality controls, especially integrity, system integrity is critical. Once that goes away, your availability is not far behind. Right. So one of the things that is lost on all this discussion, trying to put everything into a, a box of C, I, and A and management operational technical, you lose the holistic um, kind of context of what controls right. are all about and their dependencies. And that gets down to the technology, the mechanism, the implementation level. That's the science of what we do. Sure. It's not always discussed at, at the level of the CMC discussions that you're right. seeing. Of course, of course. Well, so I'll say if anyone's listening, National Security Council Interagency Policy Committee reviewing Executive Order 13556 currently at the time of this recording, please take the word confidentiality out of the executive order when you revise it and it will make everyone's life a lot easier because then we can get back to talking about the details of controls rather than having to tailor them at a very granular level. I just had a couple of other quick questions here as we go. Sure. One of the things that I noticed as a trend in the controls that were NFO and are now tailored as CUI in the initial public draft, right. the big one that everyone's asking about is independent assessment. This seems like uh, quite the bombshell when people come across. What was the rationale behind including this in as a explicit CUI control? And what's the intention? Well, you know, I, I didn't realize the impact was going to hit like the bombshell that it did. But I, now that I reflect on it, I can if see If you leave it out, it's a bombshell. If you put it in, it's a bombshell. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> The rationale for putting in is it's in the moderate baseline in Rev 5. That kind of gives you top cover for including it. Now, one of the questions that could be asked is, is that requirement in the moderate baseline, could that be considered a uniquely federal requirement? In other words, is that something the feds want to do? Um, and we have some of those federal requirements. You've seen there's a few. Sure. Out because they're, like the authorization decision, right. or the, that's a federal process. The private sector may... They, they manage risk, but they don't necessarily have an authorization decision, a formal one like we do. So one of the comments could be, well, maybe that should be a federal control or a federal requirement and not in the CUI category. That would be a fair comment to make. Um, I'm not sure I have the answer there right now. I think sure. there's, a, there's a good argument for having independent assessments because 
this is pretty much universal. This is not a federal versus a private sector right. issue. Assurance, you, assurance transcends whichever assurance context you're looking at the requirements. Exactly of. right. And, and so the question is, how important is it to have that independent assessment? Now, one thing somebody pointed out in some of our initial comments that came in, um, a lot of people think independent assessment means that you have to go outside the organization and hire somebody to come in to do that. Right. We spent a fair amount of time in one of the 53, you know, publications or the 53 Alpha talking about what the concept of independence means. There are some organizations. Now, you have to be a fairly good-sized organization to pull this off. But if you can demonstrate that the people who are coming in to assess your requirements are, are not impacted by the results of that assessment, in other words, you, your organization has enough separation through policy, uh, safeguards. A lot of this stuff is determined by uh, the ISO and the accreditation process. Mm-hmm. When you go through the three PAO and, and the independent assessment process, you have to make the argument to the accreditation organization how there's that separation sure. within the organization. In essence, in essence, you have a firewall set up. So the assessment results can be given to the other side. And the folks who give, did the assessment don't have to worry about the boss coming down and hammering right. for right. being too hard. So that's one opportunity to, to make sure that those um, independent assessments could occur within the same organization. But you'd have to make an argument why that firewall is appropriate sure. and is, is well yeah. formed. So I'm sure there's going to be lots of, I mean, you have them in the initial ones. I'm sure there's going to be lots of comments. The other big theme that jumped out to me in terms of the tailoring from NFO assumptions to now being CUI controls relate to the idea of external service providers. And this has been a yeah. major point of contention because at the federal level, at the high level, there seems to be a distinction that only recognizes organizations and cloud service providers. However, the way that the world has evolved is that now many, many, if not the majority of organizations outsource their IT management, their IT security management to a third party. And this puts a lot of stress on the SA family of control, specifically SA9 which I've always said needs to be tailored into the baseline. However, now that we've tailored SA9 into the baseline and we've got these ODPs, the question then becomes, what is an adequate set of controls for having assurance over they're not a cloud provider, they don't run a data center, they manage as an, as an intermediary node in that line, but they do lots of different administrative access. And this seems to be a hole in language in regulations, language in contracts, they are not de- defense contractors. They're not Department of State contractors. They are managed service providers, which in and of itself has no real definition. Look, how are we going to adapt to this landscape of? Well, look, this is in some sense that independent assessment and this <laughs> external provider control. There's some relationship there. We talked about small business and moderate sized business before. You know, the the idea that all these organizations are going to be able to handle all the requirements. It may be difficult, but that brings in where does that protection come from? Where are they going to go to get that? FedRAMP provides one very, very good source because that starts out with the moderate baseline, right? full stop. And defines the ODPs. Yes, exactly. Now, if, if you're not in the FedRAMP world, in the cloud world, what happens to everything else? And this is what why this control and this requirement is so important. It gets back to the very basic discussion we had starting out today. I think it's been almost three hours now, but it's been flown by. It's a black box discussion. 
if I'm going to be, if, if I'm a, uh, an organization that is under contract to the DOD or any federal organization, and they are trusting me to protect the information, but yet I'm not going to do it within the confines of my organization. I'm going to outsource it. Well, now you've, you've established a level of indirection for that protection. So that, that particular requirement is nothing more than to make transparent what the relationship is with the provider and what your statement of your requirements on them to provide the level of protection that they need to provide to allow you to go back to the federal agency and say, hey, everything's going to be okay. Right. I've defined the set of requirements that they are going to be required to adhere to. I'm, I'm defining the relationship I have with the organization. And um, there will be evidence developed, whether it's going to be a, an assessment that the MSP does, independent or otherwise, or the MSSP does. Somewhere the evidence is going to have to be right. produced to let that contractor know that since they're going out beyond what the uh, federal agency would expect, that they're not putting that information right. in jeopardy. It's a very important requirement. It's extremely important because I would say that as much as these, as much as the the defining characteristic of the supply chain is mostly small businesses, the defining characteristic of small businesses is that they outsource their IT and security to organizations that are not cloud service providers. They exist in this gray space, and I think that the changes of adding in SA nine external personnel security system access point minimizations. I think a lot of the tailoring changes from NFOs over to CUI will help that, but it does get back to that point of opening up larger policy questions of now, how do we define what that minimum acceptable basis is? Because right. what's happening in the CMMC world is people say, well, if you use a service provider, then they should have to implement 800-171. And I would agree that implementing 800-171 in a minimum is probably correct, but they do many things in terms of their administrative access that makes them a much more critical and sensitive node into these environments that perhaps the narrow, confined definition of data confidentiality for 800-171 doesn't control for, and that well, would require a separate baseline. No, I think that there's a good point there because, um, well, two points. MSPs and MSSPs as an organization, whether or not you are dealing with CUI coming from a contractor that's going to be tethered back to a, a federal agency, I, I would... I would expect or I would hope that they would want to have a well-protected organization because they're serving so many customers who are depending on them. That's number one. Um, number two is that, you know, the, the fact that um, you make a good point. If, you, if you're if you storing, processing, or transmitting information, CUI, within an MSP or they're providing the protections, no matter where that data ends up being stored or processed or transmitted, Availability does become an issue at some point. Absolutely. Um, I mean, they are a critical it, node that would it, exist. We assumed for... it was going to go away, uh, that that was going to be not part, because we did tear that part out because of the executive order. But even in the sense of a, a contractor who's not using an MSP or an MSSP, and availability becomes an issue with the ability to satisfy the terms of that contract. Right. Then that's something that you can't just cast aside. Now it's not part of 171 right now, obviously, um, and it shouldn't be because we're still working under the assumption sure. that we follow the executive order and the scope really drives everything. But th this again illustrates how CI and A, there's kind of a, a there's a there's a relationship between all these things in the context of good cybersecurity overall, and you can't 
when you start to divide things up in too many buckets and separate, you break these dependencies thinking that you may be taking a shortcut or, right. or taking, but in essence, you're going to be just doing yourself in the long term because yeah, it's going to come I, back. To I agree quarterback. completely. Same reason why you, you, we got rid of some of the characteristics in 53 and earlier versions was because of that same feature. It's just basically yeah. the same, same trap. So, I mean, we've covered a lot of information leading up to the history. I feel like we've got, given everyone a lot of context around understanding why 800-171 Rev3 initial public draft looks and feels the way that it does. I think the the real goal of this conversation is to enable people to have better um, better ability to think about and submit public comments on the document. What sort of, obviously using the comment matrix that's on the, the website, I think will help a lot, but what are the sort of comments that are helpful for the development of the document? What are some of the comments that are maybe not so helpful? Is it, is there, is there, are there rules of thumb that we can leave people with? I think um, in one of your postings, I think you, you had a pretty good list of things that uh, you recommended that people do uh, with regard to comments. I, I would say the first thing that you should do is, is pay attention to what NIST's responsibilities and authorities are. Um, we got a lot of comments during our public comment, uh, call for comments that were to just totally out of scope because we don't have the authority to do what they were asking or it was, it was outside of the executive order, the focus on confidentiality. So that's kind of the first test. Make sure if you submit a comment, we could actually consider it and, and move down that road if we had to, if we agreed with it and it made sense. The second thing I would say is to, the, the, the issue of cost in the small and medium-sized business is certainly an important issue, but it's not one that NIST can solve. And I think we talked a lot about that. Our responsibility is to make sure that we're giving our customers the best safeguards and countermeasures, either through controls or requirements that we possibly can. That means they've got to be technically correct, mm -hmm. implementable, and can do the job. So comments that are constructive would be, is a particular requirement, uh, can, can, it, can it be stated in a, in a more, in a more clear way? Uh, can it be, could it be stated differently that, that allows it to be implemented in, in a better fashion? So refining um, the content of the draft refining. rather than a bigger policy question right. surrounding is, the draft. Is there something in the discussion section which you think would be helpful that we could add giving context to, in fullness to that requirement? What are some of the things that that you might not understand about that requirement that is missing from the discussion that you think would help other people, other your peers out there understand their requirement in a, in a better uh, manner. Uh, those are all very, very useful. Um, one of the things that's not really in play now, but we would go back to the federal agencies when we were working on 53 and say, okay, we had a big meeting with the feds one day and we said, they're all around the table. I said, give me a list of every control that you want to take out of 53. I got back nothing. What I, I got I, back, I ask people this question all the time when it comes to What I got to back is a list of additional controls. Which right. Everybody complains about the size of the catalog. And when I say, okay, tell me which control you would take out and why, you get back radio silence. Right, every time. And so that kind of told me that you know, no one likes a lot of controls. They're, they are sometimes difficult and that there's a cost associated with all this. But every control... And then this catalog is there for a reason. doesn't mean, like you said, you need all of them, but you need the ones that you need. And that really does go back to risk-based decisions yeah. and the tailoring of the baselines. Now, with 171, 
there's a little less flexibility because we're, you can see where we're headed toward the CUI overlay, which will eventually get us back to the language of 53, tailored the same way, but in the context of the executive order. So anything that would help make those requirements better, um, more clearly stated. Um, talking about the ODPs, um, whether those are helpful. I know I've heard some complaints that there are too many ODPs and that there's too many in one requirement. We have, I think, one, one requirement has maybe six or seven in one. Right. So those are the kinds of things that we can work with. And the bottom line is that I would ask people to all keep this in mind when you're making comments, not just on this document, but any document. Try to keep the bigger picture in mind. What's our ultimate objective? We're not just defining requirements because we, this is what we do at NIST. Everything we do has the larger context of defending the United States, our systems, our information, and things that go to the heart of our national and our economic security. NIST is in the Department of Commerce. So we have, we have commerce and, and innovation. All those things are kind of in our DNA. On the other hand, we work very closely with our partners in the DOD and the DNI and all the other agencies that are trying to defend their systems and DHS. So keep that in mind that there is an intent, a grand scheme of why these requirements are rolling out. They may be difficult. They may require some further explanation. But each one of those requirements, when you look at it, has a specific purpose and plays a part in weaving together a set of safeguards and countermeasures in a defense-in-depth mode that's necessary to do the right thing. And with that, I would say send in your comments because every time you comment, it helps us make the document better. And without our customers out there, we really – these documents wouldn't be nearly as good as they are. We do rely upon your feedback. Yeah, I, I would say to... every time I've read a NIST standard or a draft, NIST is very um, uh, good about making sure that they emphasize the importance of the comments and how important they are to the overall process. I purposely saved a couple of quick questions for the end because if I had asked them first, we probably would have spent the entire time talking about these ones. I think the elephant in the room when it came to the draft is that the requirement for FIPS validation is no longer specified. And this was a long-term source of debate because of the issues around the CMVP program being constrained and whether or not validated crypto uh, was required. What's the story in a few words as to, that, that seems to be probably the biggest specific change within the language. Well, it, as you recall, the bottom line is, is that we had the FIPS 140 requirement hardwired into the requirement. Previously, a defined ODP, if you will. Yes. It's not, we went back to the, in our journey back toward the 853, we went back to the actual control and how that is specified in the control. And that's where the ODP comes in. Now, in the discussion section, we do mention FIPS, validated cryptography, and things like that. But the decision now is going to go back to the federal agency. And if they decide not to define that parameter, then it'll go out to whoever the next level down is. Now, there's still a policy requirement that if you're um, in the federal government and you're doing cryptography, the cryptographic modules and the algorithms have to be uh, FIPS 140 validated. So in some sense, we heard all the complaints. Um, this didn't exactly solve the problem completely, but it does, does open up the aperture a little bit wider for some decisions to be made by agencies. And we, you know, one of the, one of the common complaints was, look at, it takes a long time to go through the program. Although there's a lot of modules out there now, there's still a backlog. 
NIST has been working on that for a long time. But what happens when a vulnerability is discovered and there's a patch? This is the same problem the Orange Book and the uh, common criteria have is you're not working off the validated version. So right. is it better to have the validated version with the vulnerability or the patched version that's now not validated? Well, that's a question that people will be asking forever. We wanted to give the agencies the ability to weigh in and provide a little bit more risk management on their part so they could address those types of questions. There's not a clear-cut answer on this. Sometimes, you know, you get down to being too dogmatic and you can miss the forest for the trees. Sure. And so that's we took it, kind of opened up the aperture, yeah. give a little bit more room for a little more wiggle room, but there's still a federal requirement to make sure that things are right. validated. Now you have a little bit more more flexible. Yeah, and I agree. And I think that gets back to the point of, I think that the formatting and the changes are great and that they make it easier to see what the big question should be uh, compared yeah. to previous formatting. So the last question that I had is my favorite aspect of 171 is 171A because that's where the assurance comes from. Uh, one of the main comments that people make about 53A and 171A is they say, listen, I get it but it feels like these are expanding the requirements materially compared to the way that they're defined in 53 and 171. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think that yeah, it's, it's probably exacerbated because they're published separately. You know, what's totally what's the philosophy? We, I've point? heard this criticism. It's totally fair criticism. I've heard this from the very first version of 53. The philosophy used to be, I would say, okay, we're going to wait till 53 is locked in, and then we're going to build the procedures. Okay, that's kind of a common sense approach. The problem is a lot of people, and this this argument was even made to OMB, we're not going to implement the next rev of 53 until NIST publishes the assessment procedures. Because how can I implement unless I'm able to assess? Well, that argument fell on deaf ears. But I you do would assume that, that if you had a team of cyber engineers that they could decompose a system level requirement and come up with their own verification procedures, but that's just not really the way it plays out, I think. Well, so going back to the analogy of zero to 100 in that continuum where we would wait at the zero line until 53 was locked in before we started 53 alpha. Now what we're doing, and I, I can't, I got to be careful because I, uh, Vicky and I, uh, we we have a big webinar coming up on 6th of June. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll just, uh, we'll edit this. I'm not going to give a spoiler, but I, but I will say in general, the philosophy now is if you put out an initial draft and your confidence level is fairly high, that we're always going to have some changes in that document, but let's start to work a little earlier. And I'm not going to, I won't spoil the surprise, but we're going to work earlier on starting to roll out, build those procedures. Now, on June the 6th, as part of that webinar, we will have a, a big announcement, which is going to make a lot of people a lot happier than they've been before about Great. this issue. I won't say what it is. But the idea is that you don't necessarily have to wait until the very end because 90% yeah. of those assessment procedures are going to be what's in the initial draft. Anyway. Yeah, and I've been so, telling people, just go back to, if you want to know what they are, probably just go back to 53A because exactly. that's where they're going to be taken from. So I, exactly. I'm very excited for, for that news. So on that note, the the plan here in terms of what's going on, I think initially was announced there's going to be another final public draft perhaps, and then maybe Q1 of 2024 is when we're looking to finalize everything. Is the Q1 2024, first half 2024, still the plan for the overall CUI series for 171 and 171A? What's the, the roadmap for people to look forward to here? 
Well, the roadmap is, <clears throat> we've had a briefing that we put out the general roadmap. I think the Q1 of um, the January to March timeframe is still the uh, the projected endpoint. That would be the absolute furthest point out. We have a sense of urgency on this document. And I got to tell you, we're, we're not going to, I mean, we want to put it out for a 60-day comment period. That's what the initial draft is going out for. Our determination of how long it takes to do that, there'll just be one final draft. There's not going to be a second public draft and a final. There's going to be initial public draft, a final draft, and we're going to pull the trigger on the final. How long it takes to do the final draft is totally dependent on the comments that we get back in. The number of comments, the degree of difficulty in assessing those comments. But I can tell you, it's going to be all hands on deck. And in this sense, there's four hands on deck, <laughs> Vicky and my hands. Um, and we are, th this is a, a high priority, a sense of urgency, not just because DOD is the customer, because the entire federal government sure. is going to be using this document. And, and we realize yeah. the supply chain and all the things we talked about today, the urgency of that intellectual property, all the sensitive information, we have to do a, not only a great job on this document, we have to be timely with a sense of urgency. So I would, that's going to be the longest point out. If we can drive it into the final quarter before the end of December, I would love to do that. We can't rush it and sacrifice sure, quality, sure. but it'll be out there as soon as we possibly can. Gotcha. And once we want out there, we'll talk about that more on our sixth uh, you know, June webinar. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be sure to uh, let everybody know about that. Um, is any chance that those uh, comments on the draft will be made public like they were on the pre-draft or is that, is that something that is not normally done? No, I believe we, I believe at this point we, we will make them public. We're probably going to take out some of the things for attribution. On the, sure. Of course. On but I think we, we want to have transparency here because I think it's important for our customers to know what kind of inputs are coming in that influence our design decisions, our changes, our modifications. And I think we owe it to our customers to have that uh, level of transparency. So the plan right now would be to, to be as transparent as we possibly yeah. can. No, I think that's great. I think it's a great way to lead the way in terms of how these things are supposed to roll out, especially because there'll be such a cascading effect based off of how these Absolutely. documents are changed. But, well, um, I think we covered quite a bit as a primer in terms of the history of how the documents came together, the history of how you came into this position to sort of drive the last 30 years. I tell people all the time, you know, I'm so excited to have this conversation because the language that we use in the world of security, even if you don't believe in the 853 catalog, as it, as it, as it were, the, the words access control, the, the lexicon that we use around security is directly influenced by the documents and projects that you have worked on for so long. And so it's a tremendous honor to spend so much time with you. Thank you for being <clears throat> so gracious with your time and there's plenty more to talk about. So I hope we can have you back in the future, maybe after everything's finalized. I would love to come back. And I just wanted to say thank you for hosting the podcast. Yeah, it's great. A lot of the podcasts I do are very limited, so you can only talk about certain things, but the ability to talk about the history, um, kind of giving the context of why things ended up the way they were, that was invaluable for me to be able to tell that story. Um, and again, I would just say to all of our customers out there, I, I am so grateful to be able to serve in this position for as long as I have. NIST is a great place to work, but I've just thoroughly enjoyed working for the past 32 years with all of our customers. And again, I'm, I, I get up every day and I'm just anxious to go back to work. And as long as 
there's a mission out there, and this goes back to the, maybe the military days and the military mindset, but as long as there's a mission out there and there's important work to do, I want to continue to contribute until I can't contribute anymore. And I, I want to thank everybody out there who have spent all of their time and energy commenting on our documents and helping us make these documents what they are today, because everything in there is influenced in one way or another, not just by us, the, the authors, but also by all of the tremendous people out there who get up every day and are slugging it out in the trenches. And I say, whether you're a CISO or you're just in the trenches, you know, as part of that security program, this work is difficult. It's challenging. You never make enough money. They can't thank you enough for what you do. And most of the organizations are riding on, you know, your ability to do the best job you can. And we just are glad to be part of that process. And again, thank you so much for, for hosting today. Anytime, anytime you just let us know, we'll fire it up and uh, we'll have another conversation. Ron, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, David. Have a great weekend. Yeah.